There is no better place. It's time to talk. The only way to get anything done in Cork is to go on to the internet. Ah. Right, you know? Comments come as CUH appealed for patients not to attend the emergency department unless for a major health emergency. On Tuesday, it had nearly 300 attendances, the highest number ever. And a CUH spokesman reported that demands are unprecedented and attendances in January are up 35% in the same period last year, while admissions are up 37%. For those over age 75, attendances are up 43% and admissions are up 57%. INMO Assistant Director of Industrial Relations, Colin Porter, said the issue is not confined to the emergency department. There's patients on trolleys inappropriately placed on wards throughout the hospital. What we're seeing is patients who are sick enough to be admitted to hospital uh, but don't have a bed within that hospital. I was listening this morning to a, a report about uh, the South Infirmary, which in areas is operating at 300% of capacity. No Ishka Aaron rep at meeting. Uh, another story in the Echo, Rachel uh, Lysett reporting that Ishka Aaron, you may have heard this in our news bulletin, has confirmed it will not be sending a representative to attend a public meeting in Cork City this evening. TDs on the north side of Cork City have been calling on Ishka Aaron to address ongoing issues with discoloured water in the area ahead of the community gathering. So the community will gather, they will make their uh, complaints and their observations to the TDs, but nobody from Ishka Aaron is going to be there to hear them. But that meeting on discoloured water is to be held tonight, and a representative from the Water Utility Company said, we can confirm that we received an invitation and that a representative from Ishka Aaron will not be available to attend. However, Ishka Aaron continues to engage extensively with elected representatives and customers in relation to this issue. We'll continue to provide updates to elected representatives, including planned and reactive flushing works, upcoming projects and upgrades via the local representative service desk, press releases, councillor clinics and outreach. But we won't stand in front of the public. Uh, no, they didn't say that. That was my comment at the end. Uh, government action uh, urged after wave of restaurant closures. A West Cork business owner is campaigning for the government to act following a wave of restaurant closures across the country. So many of them now are in terminal decline. Maybe it's a little, uh, even if they did do something, it's too little too late. But Jamie Budd, the owner of Budd's Restaurant in Ballydehob, explained that the hospitality industry has been facing several uphill battles in the last few years from the COVID pandemic to the cost of living crisis. Mr. Budd said the closures were something I've been predicting for the last couple of years, citing the VAT rate increase to 13.5%. The 9% VAT was a cushion for so many small independent businesses. The government changing it was a huge blow to them. It's the difference between opening and closing for many. However, it's not just the VAT rate that businesses struggle with. Coupled with the energy crisis, which is off the scale, we've taken a massive hit on that. Uh, and there are no grants available for businesses like there was last year. Also, on the rising cost of produce, this is ridiculous. And at the start of the year, the minimum wage went up a considerable amount. Uh, this was the final nail in the coffin for so many businesses. All those topics have been covered in the last uh, two weeks. 
uh, since I took over for Neil's uh, holidays and we've spoken at, uh, about them uh, with many representatives of the, uh, not just owners, but representatives of the restaurant industry. Fears that Cork Irish College may not open this summer. This is in Ballangiri on English reporting in the Echo. That a Gaeltacht community has called for clarity from the group that runs the country's oldest Irish summer college amid concerns that it will not open this summer. The Development Association, Kalosh de Ferbaha Bail Ahas in uh, Gorhig, in Ballangiri in Cork, betcha I pronounced that wrong, uh, said that Kalosta Namuan uh, committee needs to reveal its plans or hand the running of the college over to the community. What's happening with that building, I wonder? Sharp rise in thefts in Cork City last year. Once again, an echo report. Uh, Gardaí and Cork are reporting a sharp increase in thefts from shops and in the number of reported incidents of crime against property. Last year, there were 4,601 crimes against property in Cork City, including 2,121 thefts from shops, up from 1,702, uh, and 296 incidents of non-aggravated burglary. Check out that report in the Evening Echo. To the Mirror's front page and Crime Call is their huge headline. Garda driver probed for responding to emergency. A Garda could be facing the sack because he rushed to an armed incident in a squad car. GSOC are investigating because the man did not have the required qualification for emergency responses. The Garda Representative Association's Brendan O'Connor said, members are now asking if they will be investigated should they answer a radio and respond, a radio call and respond to a serious incident. I know it shows bravery. Is it foolhardy? I guess the uh, inquiry will give more light on that. But a Garda's career is on the line for driving a force vehicle to respond to an armed incident. Let's go to the mirror now. And uh, the cost of formula. Now the latest powder keg for families with uh, young babies. Parents are struggling to feed their children due to a dramatic increase in the cost of baby formula, a senator said yesterday. Labour's Rebecca Moynihan said uh, says she's written to the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission to call for an investigation into a price increase recently. She also called on parents to be allowed to use grocery money-back vouchers on formula. Last month's consumer price index pushed uh, by, published by, beg your pardon, by the Central Statistics Office uh, noted the cost of baby food has climbed by 7% in a year. In her letter to the CCPC seen by the Irish Mirror, Senator Moynan, who's a mum to 11-month-old Margot, said uh, many parents are struggling to feed their young children due to the dramatic increase in the price of name-brand formula and the absence of generic alternatives. The Independent has GPs in fraud probe allegedly overclaimed €300,000 from the HSE. Two doctors have been arrested by fraud squad detectives over an alleged conspiracy involving the overclaiming of more than €300,000 from the HSE. The GPs, one in his 40s, the other in his 50s, allegedly submitted claims for two separate treatment types at the Midland Surgery they worked in more than 60 times the national average number for these treatments. Full story. Uh, well, it begins on the front page, at least, of the Irish Independent. Uh, the Mirror has breaking news. Dobson quits. RTE star Brian Dobson has decided to retire at the end of April, a year earlier than planned. Mr Dobson, who presents the news at one 
has worked at the station for 37 years. The Dubliner is set to leave the station just before his 64th birthday. Speaking about his departure for the first time, he said after 37 fantastic years with RTE, the time has come to move on. I will miss working with some wonderfully talented and hard-working colleagues. So bye-bye to Brian Dobson this coming uh, April. The Mail front page has fiasco of Toy Show Musical. Uh, the hits just keep on coming for RTE, but they're not profitable ones. RTE had an unrealistic expectation of ticket sales, says a damning report. There is no record of the RTE board approving uh, the event. And the convention centre was booked before any sign-off uh, was uh, arrived at or before the board even knew there was going to be a proposed musical. So a report into RTE's ill-fated toy show, The Musical, which made losses of over £2 million, has found that there was no green light given by the RTE board for the venture. Politicians on the Doyle's Public Accounts Committee and the Oireachtas Media Committee said they are prepared to hold RTE executives and the board before them again to answer questions on the matter. Uh, we haven't done much on the uh, upcoming US election. Of course, the primaries have been on uh, over the last little while, but the US looks to be facing a fight between Joe Biden and Donald Trump to be the next president, a rerun of the 2020 contest. Trump has the nod from Iowa and New Hampshire to be the Republicans' next candidate and created history by winning the first two nominating states. Uh, his double-digit victory in New Hampshire prompted President Biden, who's now 81, uh, to say, it's evident Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. And ex-UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who's just 52, is his only rival for the Republican ticket. She vowed to fight on, despite investing much time and money in the campaign to win New Hampshire. She questioned the former president's mental strength and pitched herself as a unifying candidate who would usher in generational change. After the result, she said, this race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And if you're wondering about the age comparison between Biden and Trump, uh, Joe Biden's 81, Trump is 77. Uh, and Trump said, let's not have someone take a victory when uh, she had a very bad night. Uh, but of course... Uh, maybe she's hanging in there uh, in light of Trump facing 91 criminal charges related to everything from seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election uh, to mishandling classified documents, arrang arranging payoffs to a porn actress. Uh, and uh, he's also the first president uh, to be impeached twice. If he returns to the White House, he's vowed to enact a hardline immigration agenda, including stopping migrants from crossing the U.S.-Mexico border and reimposing an international uh, travel ban. And a kind of a lacklustre performance from Joe Biden over the last four years could fuel Trump back into the White House, where he's entitled to serve one more term, uh, as every president is entitled to serve two. Uh, Roy, I'm keen. Uh, FAI, Keno. Uh, this is a story on the front of the sun. Roy Keane's bitter bust-up with former player John Walters uh, means he'll never manage Ireland, insiders claim. The Manchester United legend has opened the door to a shock return to management, but sources say the 2018 training row will forever count him out as the FAI home in on Lee Carsley as the new boss. Half of Irish Sun readers apparently back Roy Keane in a poll, uh, uh, but an insider said, I can't ever see him getting the Ireland job. Finally, Holy Spirits 
you may have heard this on the news as well. Uh, the Pope has said that booze is a gift from God. Well, not in so many words, but worshippers were last night rejoicing after Pope Francis declared booze a gift from God. The pontiff is 87 uh, now, and he said wine was handed to us from the Almighty because we make it a true source of joy. He even joked to his audience, this seems like a drunk Pope. Uh, his blessing to alcohol comes years, uh, days, sorry, after he proclaimed uh, that sexual pleasure is also a gift from God. Italian winemakers cheered his words of wisdom made during a private meeting with them by, uh, in the Vatican as they battle against European health warnings. And the Pope told them, wine, land, agricultural skills and entrepreneurialism are gifts from God. The Creator has entrusted them to us because with our sensitivity and honesty, we make them a true source of joy. He also urged them to encourage healthy drinking habits along with treating the environment and their workers with respect. And those are the morning papers. Text or WhatsApp Neil now. 0868-104-106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. 25 past nine. This is Mick Mulcahy. Now, cancer has uh, or is touching, has touched or, uh, or is touching many, if not all, families in Ireland today. People react in different ways. People get, uh, you know, retreat into themselves. Uh, Some people are are very outgoing with it and some people react in remarkable ways. One of those people is Catherine Dolphin Griffin. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Mick. Now, I'm I'm going to get to your remarkable achievements in the recent past uh, in a moment. But first of all, will you please tell me, how did cancer touch your family? Um, so I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer back in 2012 um, and at that time my dad had already been diagnosed twice with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He went on to get three more diagnoses, so five in total, and he lost his fifth battle on World Cancer Day, ironically, in um, 2017. Okay, and, and you resolved to at least aid the Cancer Research Services, the Palliative Care Services, and you undertook some fundraising then. Absolutely. I suppose when, not my own cancer, but when I lost my dad, I, I hit a low, um, something I'd never experienced before. And I suppose when I dug into that, I realised that I was angry and I didn't want to be an angry person. So I suppose I put my unfinished business in that I had with cancer into fundraising and advocacy work and anything I could do to help anyone that was willing to help cancer survivors. So that's kind of where my, that's my motivation. And where do you stand on your own cancer diagnosis now? I believe you had a big uh, anniversary recently. (laughs) Yes, I I hit my 11-year cancer-free mark in December. Um, So it it hasn't knocked again, thank God. Um, And I'm doing very well. I've had lots of side effects. I have three lifelong illnesses and I'm partially deaf, but I'm doing very well and I'm I'm so grateful to have the energy to do what I do and to still work and and be a mom and all that. So, no, I'm very grateful. and, and, and during the course of the diagnosis and, 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 and you suffering the cancer, did you have a positive mental outlook? Did it ever get you down? No, I think, um, I think I was too busy. Um, you know, when you're trying to work and you're trying to be a mom, and my dad was unwell at the time as well. So I suppose I just, I'm naturally a positive person, I suppose, and I could see lots of positive people around me, and I knew the health services were were great. I knew my dad had done so well with it. I was experienced with it at that point. You know, I'd seen him 
come out of it twice and he was quite inspirational in his attitude. I mean, my dad would have the dancing shoes in the car. He'd go to work, do his chemo and go dancing on the way home. So um, I suppose he was my role model, really. So when it hit me, I just took the same attitude. You know, that's what I was reared with. That's, a, that's, that's what I was used to. That's a wonderful image, actually. Dancing shoes in the car, <laughs> off for chemo and then <laughs> off dancing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, my dad, when he was in Marymount, he was photographing invoices, not wills, so that'll give you an idea of um, the type of home I was raised in, you know. Okay, but you resolved to do something. Where where did you start? Um, I suppose about well, back in 2001, um, I said to my husband, look, I, I, I'd made a pact. I said, if I go a year without a side effect or another diagnosis, I'll do something. So I didn't know what I was going to do, and he was kind of suggesting maybe writing down all my little strategies that had helped me like I love little words of wisdom and little positive messages that I picked up along the way so I didn't want to patronize anyone and that's where I was kind of hitting a wall with it and he said look just just write them down and see how you get on so I did in the car during the pandemic it was my little office um I was homeschooling I was teaching online um and I'd out to the car and I just wrote every day and before I knew it I had 16 little short stories all like talking about my own experiences not just with health but I suppose you know changing career you know all the little challenges I faced just as a normal person I suppose and what I did to overcome them and the the positive slant at the end of it I suppose and then I thought about translating that into a book um, which I self-published because I I couldn't afford to um, pay a publishing company so I did a self-publishing course and published that book and just put a plea out looking for people to help me print it first of all so I I did um, a GoFundMe page to pay for the first print um, and then just went around the country thanks to the support of Duns for 52 weeks um, and markets and fields and fairs, anyone that would take me I'd pop up and um, I sold it and sold 8,000 copies raising 100,000 for Marymount and the Irish Cancer Society That's an amazing amount of money just before we get back to the efforts you yeah. made uh, I just want to go back to an interesting thing you said there because it's a very uh, intriguing interpretation and attitude uh, that, that you had there. You, you said if if I don't have a side effect and if I don't uh, get a re, you know, get re-diagnosed with, a, with the next issue. In other words, if I don't have to invest all my time in, in yeah. my own self, I will selflessly go and raise money for others. That's amazing. Well, there's a bit of that and there's a bit of selfishness in it too. I suppose I wanted to show myself that cancer wasn't going to hold me back and I was definitely want, I definitely wanted to show that to my children as well, you know, and, and also my school children, you know. Um, so that's, that's kind of, from a selfish point of view as well as obviously a humble point of view, I did want to raise money. I did want to take back a little bit and pay forward, you know, but okay. um, it, it definitely was a lot of, a lot of healing as well along the way. It's given me more than it has taken from me, to be honest, you know. Okay, so so this uh, money, uh, f- uh, the fundraising effort, uh, raised money for two cars to give to Marymount for their community palliative care nurses. Now, these are the people who cover the city and county. These are the angels exactly. who provide in-home care to mm-hmm. patients. And you handed over the two cars along with a cheque for €50,000 to the Irish uh, Cancer Society uh, to find a cancer, to, or to fund a cancer research PhD, yeah? Yes, um, I suppose because Dad died in Marymount and they were exceptional to him. I mean, they even left him set up a little office inside in his room. Um, you know, they just gave him what he needed and they gave us what we needed at the time. And 
I always said I would love to do something for them when I was strong enough. I thought I would volunteer up there, but I just wasn't ever able to go back in there, to be honest. So I said I'd do something that I was able to do. So um, I asked them what they wanted, what was their blue sky wish. And due to the pandemic, they weren't able to replace their cars. So they like they didn't ask for a car. They were like, you know, that would be amazing. And I was like, okay. So back in my head, I was thinking, wouldn't two cars be even more amazing? <laughs> I got them too. <laughs> So, um, yeah, with the help of Colgan's Johnny Carrigal line. And they, I was uh, going to say, did, did you negotiate a discount with, with, with the local <laughs> oh, garage? I told them what I had to spend and I wasn't going over that. So, to be okay. fair, so well they, done, Colgan's and Carrigal line. Well done to you guys. Yeah. Well, the reason I picked them, it wasn't like, you know, I'm kind of a local girl. I'm a Middleton girl. Um, but um, I suppose Colgan's were up to get the sale of cars should Mary Bond buy them. So I didn't want to overstep oh, their okay. chance of getting the sale either. So they were very good. Okay. So, so thank so you to you- everyone there. You handed over two cars, a cheque for 50 grand to the Irish Cancer Society, and then, with the kind help of uh, Dunn's, you set up stalls in different Dunn stores across the country, uh, which helped yeah. you to sell your uh, Hope to Cope book. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, sorry. Right, no, I, I'm just... It, it's, it's quite remarkable that you have been raising money at the Dunn store shops every Saturday for the past 47 weeks, almost a year, and took your first week off in 18 months at Christmas time. <laughs> Where do you get the energy? I think it's just the drive of what's spurring me on. Just And I suppose the support. I mean, when you do good, you see good. I know that sounds like a cliche, but I never, my wildest dreams, like when I emailed Duns just out of the blue asking if I could sell my book in there, I never, I never expected the generosity I would see from them, from Margaret Heffernan, from the customers. The staff in Duns, I will say it till the day I die every single one of them and I've been in 52 stores every single one of them is as nice as the other as the next and the, and the customers they just come come by curious say you know what are you doing I tell them all of a sudden we're in a full blown conversation they're sharing their story we're connecting and just the magic happens and it just went on from there and that's where the charity came from then because I couldn't walk away from the stories I heard the connections I'd made I had this full database in my head and I just felt it needed to go somewhere and I knew I had the passion and the energy and I suppose, you know, the drive to to do something else Mm -hmm. and to continue with this work and not let it be lost, you know, so... I'm not, at my own pace. I, I, yeah. I, I'm not forgetting the charity at all because you're in the final steps of setting up a charity called Hope to Cope. Uh, it's a great That's name, right. based on the title Thank of your you. book, of course, which raised the 100 grand or over 100 grand for cancer research in the two cars. Uh, and you're very close to having this formalised, yeah? That's right. Um, it's a slow process, um, but we're, we're grateful. I have a great um, team of trustees. Um, so back in March, when I handed over the check, yeah, I handed it over in, in um, the, the Garden of Hope on Daffodil Day to the Irish Cancer Society, to the CEO there of her power. And when I was coming home on the train that night, I kind of thought, I just can't walk away now. You know, what, what will I do? And so thinking about it, and I approached my uncle and um, I asked his advice and he said, what are you thinking? And I said, I'd love to set up a charity to support the people on the ground. You know, the people that don't qualify for medical cards or grants, the working people, uh-huh. you know, just just me, I suppose, people like me and the people I met in Duns every week, you know. So um, he said, look, just put together an idea, put together your business plan. So should the business plan <laughs> uh, turned into an application? So we sent that in in March and... We were, that was the first step. And then we went into the second stage, which was in November. We were assigned a caseworker. 
and the caseworker then just dives into all the avenues of why you want to do it. The compliance side, obviously. Um, I want to do this right. I want to be regulated. I want transparency. Um, I'm very authentic myself and what I do, I do to 100%. So I just wanted that to translate into my charity because it's at the core of what I do is, you know, I suppose authenticity. So um, they assigned a caseworker to me then and we spent November and December doing the paperwork and the request that they had sent in and we got an email actually just last week saying that we're past that stage now and it's gone on to the managing team so we're on the cusp of getting our charity number which would be great because we can then approach businesses and ask for donations ask for sponsorship because it's really hard to do that without a charity number you know Yeah and it's a not for profit anyway Yes, and like I, yeah. um, exactly, and like I don't take a salary out of this. I don't take anything. I took nothing last year. I pay all my own expenses. This is a passion project for me. Um, so, um, and yeah, of course, so hopefully you, that will come through. You, you have uh, trustworthy trustees. That's why they're called trustees, and they're very important Absolutely. to surround yourself with Absolutely. in a charity. You know, lest anything be um, be pointed your way or fingers saying she must be keeping some money. That's not the case. You're even paying your own no, expenses. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't worry about that. I suppose I know the truth myself. Um, anyone that knows me knows that. And I've never experienced any negativity so far. I've been I've been very lucky. And it's not just, I suppose, the actual um, charity itself. It's all the other people. I put a message out on Instagram saying, like last weekend, can someone help me book a collecting duns? Next weekend we have our fundraiser. Can someone help me with that? And people just flood. If I put a question out, you know, what goes into a chemo bag? everyone on my page will help and list out things there's just this lovely support network of people that are all on the same journey or all affected by the same thing being cancer and they all want to help and support the next person coming up yeah. along and making their journey a little bit easier so it's, it's, it's just gorgeous to be a part of that you know and to see people doing good and wanting to do good and it's every little bit helps like people would give me a euro and I'm saying that euro is another euro. Like I had a barometer on the door of my classroom last year and every euro was documented on that barometer and every time I would get another one euro or five euro, I was getting closer to that dream and that goal and that's what it's, it's, it's together we are stronger yeah. I suppose is the message I have, you know. And, and just for clarity, even though you don't yet have that all important CY number which will formalise <laughs> you as a charity, uh, you're, still, yes. you're still able to uh, fundraise for these causes, yeah? Absolutely. I, I, I suppose for the last um, six months, what I did was I, I looked at what I could do. So, you know, I can't approach big corporates, whatever, but I can actually, if someone comes up and gives me a donation, I can take it once I lodge it to the charity account, have a receipt, I have an accountant and everything is compliant that way. Um, but what I was doing while I'm waiting for my charity number, I set up um, Instagram Live. So I bought a little log cabin. I converted it into my Hope to Cope HQ. And then every week I do an Instagram Live from there. So I invite people on to tell their story, share their little words of wisdom, um, people that actually work within cancer as well, that they can help people listening in. And people then have accessibility to this Instagram Live in their pyjamas, with their wigs on, wigs off, makeup on, makeup off, in in their own environment and they don't have to pay but they can learn and they can listen and they can connect um, so that, that's what we do because that doesn't cost anyone any money and we're not taking any money but people come to that um, Instagram live and they donate in gifts we've got wigs donated in hampers donated in and we give them back out so it's um, there's lots of things you can do while you're waiting for your charity number as well you know yeah, you're a human dynamo, a little bumblebee of buzzing activity. Uh, and, and, and to that end, it's not just we recognise you here in this programme, but you've also been nominated for Cork Person of the Year. That's going to be announced on Friday, so the best to look there. 
And, Thank um, you. And, Let's and, look to everyone up for that as well. And, and to get to the main reason that, uh, that you came on, uh, now that historically we were, we're up to date, you're holding a charity event on World Cancer Day. This is the 4th of February, which is called Kayak for Cancer. That's right. Um, one of my past people is actually Sean Kennedy. Um, he's 14 now, but um, he approached me a couple of months back and asked if, you know, if I wouldn't mind if he did a little fundraiser. So um, I was saying, oh, absolutely, you know, any help, grief, what are you thinking? And he was like, well, I like kayaking. Um, I'm thinking of kayaking from Balnacora to Ahada. Now, that's 13 kilometres. So I said, you know, bring your parents on a Zoom call because you're a minor and we'll have a chat. So Tommy, his dad, um, and Sean, we've been having almost weekly Zoom since then. And we decided we'll go for World Cancer Day. I mean, it's dad's anniversary. What better day? Um, I just hope the weather is good. So they're starting in Balnacora at half 11 and Frank, um, big Zumba class down here in Middleton are launching the kayak um, at the Feathers in Middleton at half 11 and then the guys will kayak up to Ahada Pier and then we have a little event happening down there. That's a beautiful journey actually. I, I often do it on, on boats with go for a beer in uh, Jack O'Crenan's in Balnacurra. You can see Middleton on the plotter. Uh, and That's of course, right. uh, the, the, the wonderful Rosies will probably host you as well. Uh, oh, in a, but you've you got music on the pier as well. We're having music. Rosies are doing some food. We have food trucks. We have emerald ice. We have some face painting. You know, a nice, nice family day. And the all sea swimmers are coming down as well. They're going to do a dip. And we have Mikey's sauna. If people want to do a dip, they can go into the sauna after just a family day bring your dogs bring your kids you know everyone gets, it's accessible for everyone and um, might let off a pink flare at the end Sure so <laughs> it, look e- either in Balnacurra or in Ahada there's fun to be had uh, you're, you're nicely along to what looks like a very meagre target a very very low ball target of a thousand euro you're 680 there uh, I, I would imagine you'll multiply that target when you eventually count the money yeah? Oh, please, God. And there's other people um, on the sidelines um, fundraising as well. So we're, we're over 2,000 now. Um, I'm trying to drive people to my Instagram page, um, which is my Hope to Cup story, because there you can see a link to donate or a link to join the kayak. Or if you just want to turn up at half 11 and join in the Zumba class and have a coffee, or if you want to head to the pier for half two, you don't even have to kayak the 13 kilometres. You can jump on at any point, but just let us know um, via Instagram. There's a little sign-up sheet just for compliance because we have shore marshals and we want this to be a safe event, obviously. And the people that go in, we want them to come out. Yes, of course. And the the Instagram address is um, at my.hope.2.cope.story, is it? Or is it yeah, a- so if you just put in my hope to cope story, it'll pop up. It's a little pink. You'll see the pink cherry blossoms. Okay, my hope to cope story uh, on Instagram. I'm tired just talking to you. You're you're, you're of the boundless energy. You're draining it from me. You, you, I'm thinking of all to these activities. <laughs> it's been brilliant talking to you. You're, you're an inspiration. So well done, Catherine Dolphin Griffin. Best of luck Thank you. Uh, in the Cork Thank Person you. of the Year Awards on Friday night and uh, continued success in everything you're doing. Thank you so much, and thank you to everyone that supports Hope to Cope. I'm, I'm truly grateful. Thanks. Good morning. The Neil Prendival Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. 13 minutes to 10. Mick Barry, TD for Cork North Central, joins me in line two. Morning to you, Mick. Morning to you, Mick Mulcahy. Now, you were, you were one of the main instigators of this public meeting. You were calling the meeting on the issue of dirty, discoloured water in Cork City's predominantly Northside areas. Um, uh, did you set up this meeting, obviously knowing it would be attend, very well attended by residents, but in the hope that uh, Ishka Aaron would attend, um, or what was it? Yeah, well, we've had a situation for more than 18 months now where people have been turning on their taps 
and not being sure whether they're going to get uh, brown water, whether they're going to get orange water, dirty discoloured water. 18 months. And Yeah, I think August, September of uh, 2022 was when the problem began in a big way. I have had reports from residents in the Ballyvalan area uh, and other areas of problems before that. But 18 months ago was the time that really the phone started hopping in relation to this issue. Apparently, it was at the time of the uh, opening of the new Lee Road Waterworks, uh, which Ishka Aaron had contracted out to a private uh, company. uh, And uh, they treated what they describe as hard water uh, with chemicals. Uh, I think they put too much of the chemical in. And then soon afterwards, uh, when the system went full scale and people started turning on their taps, brown water, orange water, dirty discoloured water. And the, the, the problems that it has caused for people right across the city, but perhaps particularly on the north side, have been really massive. And has there been boil notices? No, uh, there hasn't been boil notices. Uh, Ishka Air and Irish Water uh, insist that uh, the water is safe to drink uh, if you allow it uh, run free, uh, you know, run the tap for five or ten minutes and get rid of the uh, uh, discoloration. Uh, but it's, it's, a good, it's a good job you're not on a water meter then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the problems for people have been uh, manifold. I mean, some people, some communities, um, you know, it's, it's more or less constant discoloured water so people particularly people with young kids uh, have had to uh, go to the supermarkets and stop stock up with uh, with bottled water 20 euro a week uh, for a year a thousand euro in the in the middle of a cost of living uh, crisis yeah other people have, have put on the wash um you know uh, bed clothes uh, uh, shirts uh, dresses and so on. Uh, absolutely spoiled by a surge of discoloured water, dishwashers wrecked, washing machines uh, wrecked. And, and and we had another surge of this in October, November, in the run-up to uh, uh, Christmas. Uh, and I, I think p- uh, people's patience is at an end on this one. OK, where's the meeting tonight? The meeting tonight is in the Maldron Hotel in Shandon, all right? Obviously, a couple of Maldron hotels in the city, but it's the Maldron in Shandon, it's a half seven start. We've got um, a number of speakers who are giving um, their family's experience of how they've been plagued with this issue over the last uh, uh, months and years. We have a speaker from uh, Blackpool. We have a speaker from uh, Ballyvalan who will talk about uh, how it has affected them uh, personally. We, we, will, we will then throw it out to the floor for a discussion. And we want people who've been affected by this to uh, come to the meeting and to share their experiences. We want to, this is an opportunity for people to tell their uh, stories. Now, the second half of the meeting is going to be a little bit different now than how we had originally envisaged. Um, do you want me to explain that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, quickly, because I want to move on to the VMware topic as well. Sure, okay. Well, look, briefly, um, we invited Irish Water uh, to this meeting. Uh, We know that Irish Water have sent statements to the media and have had meetings with councillors, but we felt it was important that they would meet face-to-face with the householders who've been directly affected 
listen to the points that they uh, raised and also do what they haven't done to date, which is outline a clear plan with a time scale uh, for solving this problem. Not just getting rid of it in an area for a week or two, but for solving the problem. We found out uh, at a late stage that Irish Water said that they didn't have anyone available to attend the meeting. So the second half of the meeting will be rather different now. There will be a chair there with the words Ishka Aaron representative on it, and it will be empty. We are naming and shaming them. But the second half of the meeting now will discuss uh, a proposal that will be put to the meeting for debate and discussion to say that if they don't come to us, well then, we will go to them and discuss organising the first protest outside of the offices of Ishka Aaron, which I believe are in Eglinton Street in the city centre. Uh, we're going to have a discussion as to whether people feel this has got to the point that we actually organise a citywide protest on this issue. Okay, they are very, very competent at uh, giving um, eloquent cop-outs, which I'll read for you now. Uh, Ishka Aaron, sorry, I'll I'll read it in full. We can confirm we've received an invitation and that a representative from Ishka Aaron will not be available to attend. Nobody. However, Ishka Aaron continues to engage extensively with elected representatives and customers in relation to this issue. We will continue to provide updates to elected representatives, including planned and reactive flushing works, upcoming projects and upgrades via the local representative service desk, press releases, councillor clinics uh, and outreach. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, it's the usual uh, gobbledygook, although there is one interesting point that I would pick out of it. Who are they engaging with? Is if they're not engaging with you en masse, are they, indiga- are they engaging individually? If, when public representatives ring, uh, they will take a call. And when individual householders ring, um, eventually <laughs> people yeah. will, will more often than not get through. Well, I wouldn't and mind hearing from one of those one of those service users. Um, you know, mostly it's going to be Northside. But if you are listening on the Northside today uh, and you have been in touch with Ishka Aaron and you have any more information to uh, to give us and light to shed on this, then, then we'd like to. But you're going to have the meeting. Yeah. Part two is they're, they're not here. Uh, we're, we're going to have to go to them. So you're, you're going to up the ante, as it were. Uh, just we're going we, to up, yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're going to up the ante, and just what they said there about the flushing, very briefly. Um, you know, uh, w- when they get a bunch of calls from an area, water workers are sent out, and the system is flushed out. More often than not, it sorts the problem out, but it can sort the problem out for a week or two weeks or a month or two months, and then it comes back again. And in the meantime. Uh, Our water workers in this city who do a tremendous job, there's a lot of experience uh, uh, and know-how in there, uh, who should be upgrading the water system uh, in the city and putting their energy towards that, are engaging in this firefighting exercise of running to Billy to Jack. My understanding is that about one-third of the time of the water workers in the city is spent on that uh, um, uh, work uh, at, uh, at the moment. We want a solution to this, not uh, putting a, a bandage on local problems for a couple of weeks. All right, I've got about a minute left. So today you're going to speak in, in the Doyle about VMware. This is an American multinational, is it? Uh, VMware has just been purchased by a company called Broadcom for 69 uh, billion euro. Uh, VMware have... 69 uh, million or 69 billion? 69 billion. Uh, This is a a big buyout. And uh, there's plant in Balancholic, uh, more than a thousand workers in Balancholic. And what the new owners are doing 
are two things. One thing was known, and the other I'm bringing to people's attention. What's known is that they were going for a big program of redundancies, and there's 364 redundancies is what they are asking for. Um, but uh, on Monday, people were, were said, if you want to stay with the company, there's new contracts, and the new contracts are pretty shocking in my book. Will I give you the headlines from please, it? Please, please, yeah. Yeah, okay, so... Um, uh, previously, there was support for parents with cognitively disadvantaged children. It was part of the package. Uh, that's being changed. Uh, there was a bereavement, bereavement leave scheme. That is being uh, changed. Uh, and the big one for me is that previously, when there was six months uh, paid maternity leave, now that is being cut to uh, basically uh, three months. So, you know, women's rights need to be protected and advanced. This is a serious attack on women's rights, in my view, and I think it's an issue, not just for VM workers who are affected directly, but for every woman worker in the city and the country. This is how new trends in industry start being established and the ball gets rolling, and I wanted to blow the whistle on that one. Okay, so cutting maternity, paid maternity from six months to 12 weeks or three months, uh, letting go over 360,000 staff members and other changes. Will you keep in touch, Mick, and let us know how that goes today in the Doyle? Uh, I actually raised the points yesterday. Oh, did you? I beg your pardon. Co- I'll send you a copy of the video in case you want to play a little bit of the uh, the uh, reply from uh, uh, the Taoiseach. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Mick. Not a bother. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Mick Barry, TD from Cork North Central. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. Uh, lots of uh, texts and comments coming in on 086 8104 uh, 106 uh, on the A&E. Sorry I can't go on air, but how the hell are people supposed to know if it is or is not an emergency before attending hospital? We need to go back to a situation where if someone is very sick, they can get a doctor out to their home. Doctors need to sort this immediately. This, that's 100% the problem, uh, says Kieran. I don't know. I'd welcome some opinions on that. Doctors are already hard to get, uh, already hard to see. You're queuing up for an hour or two. Uh, even if you make an appointment, you're also going to be queuing. So I'm not sure the doctors have uh, the time or the space uh, needed to be able to refer people in. Of course, they'll uh, prioritise people who come in with a suspected heart attack or something. But uh, aren't you then wasting time at your doctor instead of going to the A and E, uh, where you know where you will be categorised and where you will uh, be taken in if it's urgent? I think what they're saying is uh, use your own judgment. But if you want to join a queue of three hundred people, uh, well, that's the daily turnover. Maybe a queue of twenty five, thirty people. Maybe be waiting for ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen hours. Uh, that's the uh, that's your lot at the A and E at the moment. They are so overrun. On Catherine Dolphin Griffin, hi Mick. Fair play to that lady and the amount of work she's doing for cancer. My son plays football for a team that was formed last year. They play in the Premier Division of the Cork Business League, having gained a promotion in their first year. They set up this new club to raise funds for Ark House in Cork and because a number of their members' families have been affected by cancer. In their short existence, they've raised thousands of euro for Ark House. They're named uh, Ark Rovers. The club is called Ark Rovers. Uh, I think a small mention would be much appreciated. Mick, thank you, says Anthony. So, well done, lads, everyone. Uh, lads and lassies, or maybe maybe just lads, I don't know. They're named club uh, the club Ark Rovers and uh, all working towards 
that good cause. Hi Mick, your gig is nearly over now and it was lovely to hear you on the radio. Hopefully you'll be back again soon when Neil is off again. Uh, listening to that woman there, she's a tower of strength. She deserves that Cork Person of the Year award over and over again. And by the way, Dunstore's girls are definitely in a league of their own. They are so nice and so helpful as I can't always find things in the Bandon Road store. They go right with me and they show me exactly where what I'm looking for is placed. They are amazing and very friendly to everyone. So says Marie in Clan. Uh, Marie is a long-time listener to the show. Thank you for your interaction, Marie. Uh, on the electricity charge, Mick, can your service provider take that off the government credit before applying the credit to your account? I have an electricity account and got 137.61 on my account from them rather than uh, the full amount. Is this not illegal? I don't know. That's from Pat O'Mahony and your calls and comments are welcome on that. Just to get to some of the more recent texts on water quality. Hi, I'm living in the Gronabroher area. My water is brown most days. I get over that, but it's having to redo the washing constantly that gets me. It's been going on for months. Uh, hi, Mick. Can you ask McBarry why he wasn't up in Mayfield in support of the people? After all, he is for housing everyone, or is he? Uh, he still won't be getting our votes says a texter. One final one. It seems a trend, but why is it that when there's a high concern issue, such as demonstrations against refugees, the quality of local drinking water, etc., you always have opposition TDs or councillors on the air. Why not talk to a sitting local Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael TD? Are they refusing or are you following an agenda? No, we're not following any, uh, any agenda just to get the, uh, the thoughts and the will of the people onto the air. Uh, we did, by the way, have Colin Burke, who is a Fine Gael TD, and Joe Kavanagh, who is a Fine Gael councillor, uh, on the Dominican Centre topic. So uh, it's not just uh, opposition TDs uh, like Sinn Féin or some of the independents. Uh, we've had uh, Colin Burke, Fine Gael TD, and Joe Kavanagh, Fine Gael councillor, on the Dominican Centre. Uh, your texts are welcome on 0868104106. And Chris Sherlock joins me now on line one. Morning to you, Chris. Good morning. How's things? Good, good, good. Your story is one of two that we're going to be doing. Well, there may be more, uh, but certainly two highlight high-profile stories in, in which we're going to give uh, a nice amount of time because I really want to get to the nub of it. We're going to do another one tomorrow between 11 and 12. Uh, uh, those people are travelling from Dublin. Um, but you're on the phone and you have uh, quite a remarkable story which started very, very young. Yeah, so unfortunately it was literally at the transition stage of going from primary to secondary school and, you know, it was a brand new building, new friends, new teachers, new subjects, the whole lot of it was a lot to take in for quite a young teen, as you can imagine. And I was a shy kid, so when I first, you know, started, I only had like a handful of my usual friends that was coming with me to this particular school and it just made sitting in a bit more of a challenge, if that makes sense. So uh, from the first week, I was subject to name-calling, uh, plenty of verbal abuse, every sort of slur was thrown at me, you know. Uh, and that's very unsettling. If, if if you don't walk in with a certain air of confidence, you could be identified as the weakest link. And then, of course, it's not just one or two, but you become the main focus. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened. So it was, it was quite... Um, you know, interesting to look back on now when you kind of look back on things when you're in the moment you don't think of these things of course but they had their their mindset on, on two or three kids and I was the main one that they seemed to want to to make sure that they made their life you know, made my life hell that was their goal 
So when it came to it anyway, uh, a few days had passed, you know, I would say nothing. I would I would just ignore them and hope that they would move on to somebody else and, and quick as possible was my mind frame uh, back then. But when it came to not doing anything about it uh, straight off the bat, it did get physical then. I remember being on the school lunch break at, uh, one lunch time and, you know, I was sorting out books for school with the parents and I was on the phone to my mother and before I knew it, um, the phone was taken out of my hand. I was pushed and shoved up against the wall, and then a hand around my neck was choking me instantly. And I, I just was in complete shock. And I can remember it as, as clearly as I'm talking to you now. It's something that stays with you for a long time. And that was one of the first uh, incidents that happened during the the break. Okay, uh, but sure, the surely your mum must have known that something is wrong. She must have heard something if if you're on a live phone well, call to her. Well, exactly. That that's that that was my worry and I but thankfully when the phone was taken out of my hands they did you know, in my eyes it was thankfully because I didn't want them to know what was going on. So the call had actually disconnected because they took my phone and they threw it away and it was it's one of the older phones, so the battery had came out and the back came off. Uh, you know, it, it it was cracked, the phone was broken like so um I did manage to get it back working but I was trying to get out of that situation quickly and get to the a quietest part that I could find of the school grounds, yeah. and, you know, after those moments, because I was shaken, I was completely frozen, you know. I, I, w- I would have thought you would have hoped that a parent had heard and intervened, but it seems to be a common thread among those who are being bullied, is that, is that they keep it all to themselves. They don't want their parents to interject and, and visit the school on their behalf or call to other parents, because then they become the renewed focus of even a larger group of bullies, apparently. That's what they worry about. Yeah, well, it's the consequences of being a rat for the victim because it's going to make, the, you know, when the bully is found out, they're, they, they, they're going to get detention, they're going to get maybe expelled for a few days or suspended, I should say, and that that's going to be, you know, that that's going to be on the bully's mind because they're in trouble, so they're going to come back at you double the time, times worse. So, so that's what I was full sure was going to happen. But re- re- realistically, um, when it came down to it, it was more of, I should have spoke up there and then, but I was protecting myself and protecting others. And in my mind, it was a new school. I was still adjusting to things. And I didn't want my parents to be worrying about me and all this kind of stuff. You know, that, 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 And I didn't want to be a disappointment to my parents either because... I, you know, I was always told, you know, make new friends and, and enjoy and, you know, blend in and that kind of stuff. You know, you're always encouraged to do that. And I was more than happy to do that. But it was just when you have people like that making your life misery day in and day out, um, it doesn't help the occasion. You're suffering pure hell and you need some resolve to, to get through that. And you need a little bit of bravery and you need it's it, it's hard to put words around it that you're going through your own private trauma uh, you know while almost in school being publicly bullied yeah well I found when I got to the stage of the, the next stage that happened shortly after that was I, I, I had a, a day or two off after no sorry I, I was finished my school day like that but I was I was being sick for two or three days after that because I was reliving what was happening in my head now at the time of the of the, the matter it was PTSD, but I didn't know what PTSD was, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And I, I just, I, I was just losing sleep. I wasn't focusing on my subjects, and I was trying to get, you know, get uh, get in tune with everything. 
But I remember on one big lunch break, I was literally minding my own business. And then I, I was heading back to class and I thought everything was grand. I thought the worst was over at this stage. And I, I, it, it was an old style building where the school is. And I remember I had to go into the top floor for the class. And to give you like a quick picture, there's a set of double doors on each floor. And, it, you know, it wasn't uncommon for kids to be, you know, hanging around on the uh-huh. stairwells and outside these doors, etc. But um, I remember trying to get through these, let, let me guess, these doors. Let, let me guess, the, the guys who were focusing on you, the guy who had his, hand, his hands around your neck, um, a, a right gang of them. Correct. Yeah, they 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 were they were on the floor that I had to go to, unfortunately. And I, I every time I tried to get through those doors, they kept pushing and shoving me away, and they they just didn't care what I had to say or do. They wanted money off me, you know, and they, they said, no, you, you know, pe- people with book teeth, you know, are idiots here. First years can't get go through here. All this kind of stuff that they could throw at you was thrown. And but before I knew it, then the bag was pulled off my shoulder and the the uniform at the time was like a polo shirt kind of, and, and kind of a fleece jumper. They were pulled up over my head and I was pushed down the flight of stairs that I had just come up, which was hardcore flooring stairs. And I just remember looking up at them and they were laughing and skitting. And I just, I was in shock and I started crying and I, I noticed blood was on my hands uh, from my elbow just to, my, just above my wrist. There was a big gash and it was pumping my blood and I was shaking and I, I didn't know where to go or what to do, but I just knew that I had to get to the school office to go home was, you know, that was my goal. And that's when things then started to come out slowly that what what was happening because I was, just living in fear all the time from, okay, from can, then on, Farla. Could we could we concentrate on two elements here? You, 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 you've you've yeah. written you've written you had a gash from your wrist to your elbow and that you were pumping blood. What happened from the school's perspective to protect you and, and to take down the bullies or to censor the bullies? Uh, and what happened as things began to you know the onion began to be peeled layer by layer about the bullying uh, in the home situation? Right, well, uh, from the incident, I, I was brought, I, I, my mother was sent for, I was brought home, and I had covered that up once again, and I said that I was clumsy, and I just fell down the stairs. Um, but uh, as a few days went on, the, the, the sleepless nights and all that, bedwetting was getting worse. So I, I was brought back to the doctor, and it was only then afterwards I said, look, uh, I need a few days off school, etc. And then I tried to go back to school, which was the following Monday uh, or whatever week it was. This was like the third week. Uh, or sorry, going into the fourth week from the third week into the fourth week. And then I just got to the school gates and I broke down in complete uh, fear. I couldn't breathe. I started hyperventilating. I felt like my heart was going to come out of my chest. I had a full-blown panic attack. And then that's when then I had no choice to tell my parents what was actually happening. I was being bullied and I was trying to get the last three weeks out in the space of literally minutes. And I wasn't making any sense, of course. So when we talked it all out at home with my parents and then I, we took action then with the school, we talked to the principal and we talked to the year ahead teacher. And the response from my principal in that meeting was, well, it's the consequences of being a first-year student. That's not good um, you know, you, it, that, That's no excuse. No, no it's not. It, it, and my, my mother and father looked at each other and, and they were just complete, you know, in disgust with the school. And I, I, I didn't know what to do or where to go. And 
I, I told my story, I told them what was happening. I managed to pinpoint the two perpetrators of the bullies that were there and they, they got suspended for a couple of days in detention for the week as far as I can remember and then I never went back to school since. I never set my leave and start my junior start as a result of the bullying and I, it took me a long time to recover. You're talking uh, around six years or so of like, you know, counselling, checking out my GP. Uh, you know, I suffered PTSD, depression, uh, severe anxiety. Like, to be honest with you, I couldn't be in a room with more than three or four people in case that, I, you know, someone was going to come over to me straight away and start picking on me. I That was my new normal, and that's what I, that's what I thought I was going to be faced with So you, you, suffered, you suffered physical, mental and psychological damage? Yeah, and and this this was because two two guys in my school, it was an all guys school, wanted to be popular and just had a vendetta against me for no reason at all. And that's the whole thing for no reason. They just look for the weakest link and say we'll have some fun with this guy. Yeah, and I I like I to be honest with you, it was only for one particular act of kindness where I was out, you know, I was encouraged to go for walks and, you know, focus on my hobbies as a coping mechanism and it, it helped me little by little each day and I remember going for a walk and I'd stuck the music in my ears and I'd just go around where I was living and stuff and I just remember that, you know, I have nothing to my name now. My parents think uh, no, I'm a disappointment, never mind thinking at this stage. And I just had all these worries and pressures of going back to school, not being able to, you know, go on to, you know, college or whatever, because I just felt like everything was taken away from me. So the the, wall, the walls came crashing down and it, everything went into black and white in my head. And I just thought I need to end my life here because this, this my life is over as it is. You know, why, why you know, well, it, that's literally the the thoughts that I had in my head, and it was literally just by a stroke of luck that uh, two of my friends that were in, from my estate were were coming home from town because it was the same area where I lived to go in and out of town into city centre, and I just thought, well, if I am here and I can go up on a bridge and jump in, and that's the end of my life. But they distracted me, these two lads, and they literally just. Uh, kept normal they didn't know they, I don't, to this day I know they know that what, what I was thinking they had no clue of what the situation was happening is it true you were distracted by a whistle as you had those thoughts I mean you, you thought you didn't have an education you thought you wouldn't be able to survive in life you thought your parents would think you were, you'd be a disappointment you thought you were destined to be a failure you thought you were a burden on everybody um and then you thought if you died, then you wouldn't be a burden on anyone. And then you heard a whistle. Are you there? Oh, have we lost him? Uh, okay. Here, let's, hello. Oh, oh, yeah, you're there. We lost you there for a second. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Chris. Yeah. Um, so you, 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 you heard a whistle. That whistle kind of verifiably saved your life. No, we have a... I was literally about... I was about to jump in and the whistle distracted everything and I was just, I, they just offered me the chance then when they got, got talking to me to go back to their house to play video games and I, I never looked back since. Do they know that now? That they intervened at just the right time? They, they didn't know until I, I wrote about it in a mental health for millennials book. They, they had no clue. Um, it was only afterwards they knew I was being bullied and I was, you know, because I was at home quite a lot and that they, they knew a little bit of what was going on, but they didn't know how bad it was. And they were like, oh, wow, 
we you know we couldn't we, they, they couldn't believe it you know um so but I, I said yeah well I said it's not something I wanted to talk about because you know I was made to feel ashamed uh, and and I did feel ashamed of, of what I was about to do but it was just I it was an avenue that I didn't want to turn to but and thankfully didn't succeed doing which is why I'm here talking to you today but it was just it, it goes to show you like kindness and respect goes a very long way. And uh, that's why I wanted to put my story out there in the Mental Health for Millennials books with Book Hub Publishing because they they gave me the chance to share that story as well as my coping mechanisms. And it goes to show you that if you know there is always light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dark days can get. But bullying has always stayed with you. Its effects have always stayed with you. It's just that you've learned to cope with them a little bit better now. Um, well, you can keep 100%. trying to forget it. Yeah, and in in that in that sense, with it being an ever present monkey on your shoulder, as they say, how long did it take you to uncover your natural personality, your natural confidence, your love for life again? I, I, it took years. Uh, the exact number is unknown because it's still a learning curve here and there. You know, you still have little bits to kind of creep in now and then. But I, I. I the real brunt of it was six, seven years before I could start, you know, trusting meeting new friends again, you know, you know, just being my happy-go-lucky self because, you know, I, I like yourself there, I, you know, I, I, I love radio and I, I love TV and it, it, that gave me the courage, you know, believe it or not, watching TV and listening to the radio and just reading magazines and stuff, the, the draw to work in media and like that, I like talking to people and, you know, chatting all things entertainment and all, every avenue. Um, and I just thought, this is my job. This is what I would love to do. And th- this is why I want to share my story today to say that, look, no matter how things get and I know how bad they can get, you know, th- you, you can turn it around. And a true determination to not let the bullies win was one of my goals. You know, I didn't tell anybody that that was the goal. It was just within myself to go, you know, that's, they have their life but I need to go come back and live my life and yeah. be the person that I, that I was born to be so that's that's where I'm at today thankfully I'm here to tell the tale and I'm hoping by telling this tale of my story that I can help others that are listening no matter what age you are I know bullying is starting earlier and earlier I've, I've been doing school talks and even primary schools are telling me that it's happening at the ages of 6 and 7 years old and this is shocking you know so I know we're living in a whole new media era from when it happened to me. You know, social media is now a thing. And this is something that we really have to get on top of and make sure that it's not happening. And, you know, just check in on our kids more closely and keep a watchful eye if the teachers can do it. I know they have a lot on their plate, teachers, but, you know, they will know straight away if a, if a student is struggling more than normal. And, and, and hopefully they'll be able to catch the signs. Yeah. Schools out there need to put more stuff in place as well. You know, we, we there, on the government website there is strategies and routines that schools can introduce. Uh, there's an anti-bullying week every year, uh, but schools need to put in more well-being weeks and, and an extra anti-bullying week to create this awareness to get people talking and remind people that, you know, bullying is now a crime thanks to Coco's law. With all that I, I was just about, to, I'm just about to mention, speaking at length, to Jackie Fox uh, on a previous show. Uh, Jackie, of course, is a parent who probably, you know, had had to go through the loss of a child, as your parents didn't, thankfully. But in 2018, Nicole Fox, Coco, 
took her own life age 21 after being relentlessly bullied online and abused physically by the way for three years as well uh, and Jackie's story is remarkable and we refer people to that if they're listening and are triggered or affected by today's conversation with you um, uh, Chris that you know there are other stories out there and I, I remember one of the nicest lines was that Helen McEntee Minister for Justice was very very slow to allow the law to be called Coco's Law until she met Jackie and then as a mum herself she understood and now it's called Coco's Law it's not the anti-bullying charter law or any of that stuff it's called Coco's Law you've been inspirational as well but can I go back to the parents who are or are not left behind and there are parents listening today who may be worried about little Johnny or little Mary what are the signs you've been there firsthand. Uh, what signs do you regret not showing to your parents or what signs if someone is in that lonely place should parents watch out for as telltale signs that their child is being bullied? Well, straight off the bat, they, they you know, their parents know their kids more than anyone else in the world, especially mothers, I think. But, you know, you, you will know straight away, you know, if, they, if they're into sport or if they're into theatre or drama, no matter what they're into, their hobbies, if you notice that they're slightly disconnected than normal, if they're not as talkative. Now, I know there's a lot of teenagers out there and they're always on their phone and stuff. And it, it's hard to get a read sometimes on what they're thinking or what they're doing. But that's where you really have to deep dive in and not necessarily spy on them, but just try and talk to them and say, look, is there something online? Check in with them now and then and just ask them, are you really OK? How's school going? How are your friends? You know, is there anything happening? And, you know, create a conversation around bullying. You know, you can refer to a story like Coco's Law or, you know, Coco's story at all or even my story if you've read it and say, look, I read this in the paper about being bullied at school. Is everything all right? You know, you can take that step forward and if they don't say it straight away, see how things go. But if, if things are getting worse in the bullying and if it's ongoing, you will definitely see the, the lack of sleep. You know, you'll see, you'll see them be dis- disconnected from their, their subjects. You know, things will they'll start falling behind a little bit and they are signs or if they seem a bit more depressed or if they're not going out as much, you, you will know your kids and it, it, it sometimes... I wish that I could have just said straight from the bat that look, these guys are picking on me. It's 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 the only regret that I have that I didn't talk up sooner. Yeah. Um, everything else, I, I I wouldn't change. But if I talked up sooner, I could have prevented things from getting worse. And like for any teenager or for any parent, if you go to tackle bullying.ie or bullies out, um, there are charity organisations with information online, and there's little, um, you know. Uh, advice points there that you can go to and look at they're, they're a great thing and programs then in the schools can be done you know I always recommend to teachers or a, any sort of year ahead to have like a, a comment box and say look if I'm being bullied in school write out a little note and put it into the comment bo- box and then at least they can address it like there's someone being bullied in the class this has to stop now and you know address that's a great it. idea yeah this person is feeling like this and if this person doesn't mind coming forward to me, the teacher, Miss whatever, Miss Robinson, then I, I will talk to this, the, the victim and, and know that there is help for you. You know, they have anti-bullying policies. Every school should have them and reinforce them, but it's just getting to that stage. So a little comment box that's an ominous That's a great idea. Get the ball rolling. Chris, yeah. th- Chris, thank you very much. Your story is inspirational. You're a bit of a DJ. You're broadcasting with Flirt FM, which is a voluntary local radio station. 
Um, and tomorrow, if you get a chance, tune in between 11 and 12 when uh, a lady, young lady is travelling from Dublin to talk to me. Uh, her bullying was so bad she went blind. Um, but oh, wow. uh, but as with with many who've been bullied, without the bullying, she wouldn't have the life she has today. There, there are certain ironic links uh, that can often play out in life and it happened for this girl, Kaylee. Her story's amazing. You'll hear it tomorrow uh, when she joins me in studio. But uh, without the bullying, she wouldn't have had the life she has now. And so she's thankful, even though she obviously went through the trauma uh, of uh, everything as you did along the way. It shaped you as well, I'd say. It shaped the person you've become, has it? Oh, for sure. Like, to be honest, the, the, that's the thing when I was saying I don't want to change anything because I, I'm I'm going far. I, I've since now left Flirt, so I'm I'm, I'm branching out to other stations and doing freelance media and stuff. But so uh, it, it, it's one of those things. But yeah, I went to radio straight off the bat. Flirt FM took me in, and we, it was the college station here in NUIG, and it was just that coping mechanism and to work in media got me forward and I suppose you never know in, we, we, we might see you here on Cork's Good Times Red FM some, someday Chris gotta leave it there thank you so much this morning very best of luck with your career and with your life thank you Chris Chris thank Sherlock you my there. pleasure thank you call Neil now 0818 104 106 The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM John thanks for holding you've been holding a while there you've been listening and you suffered similar to our last caller did you? That's correct, yeah. What happened? From uh, daily account, from primary school right up to third year, I was constantly bullied by kids. Teachers would walk on by or laugh at it. Uh, I went to my father, I told my father what was going on, but because teachers were on 90-foot pedestals back then, he would believe every word that came out of the principal and vice principal as opposed to his own son. I've written a book, uh, sorry, I've written a document called Bullying to the Life I Would Live, I Would Have Lived. There's over 200 pages in it. It goes through the consequences of what happens and where it leaves you in life. I wanted to be an emergency room doctor, but because the bullying had got so severe in secondary school, where I was picked on, punched, ran into a pillow, with concussion. Teachers didn't bother to call an ambulance. They just dropped me home. Um, and it has impacted my life ever since. Bullicide is a constant companion when I have very low days. And um, this country just sits on its backside and does nothing about the effect on somebody's primary health. Your primary health is not your physical well-being. It's your psychological and mental health is your primary. If you break a leg, you get over it. Or if you have a, a, a medical issue, there's tablets to take. But when you're psychologically abused, there is no medication and there is no recovery. How, how, long, did you, how long did you hide it from your parents, John? I was... I went, after first year, I went in and I taught my father. And what happened? And he went into the school and back then there was, teachers were on 90 foot pedestals, which they should never have been. Um, he believed them before his own son. They belie- believed the teacher over over yourself. And when, yeah. when did they finally yeah. realise, hang on, he's telling the truth? Uh, I... I think it was when they pulled me out of school. Mm-hmm. And that was fairly quick once they realised, was it? 
Has the bullying Im- uh, impacted uh, your health mentally, physically, psychologically to this day? Yeah, yeah, it has. It hasn't shaped you in, in any positive way then? You, you're still suffering the effects? Yeah, but, I, but I, I went in and I joined the voluntary ambulance service here in Middleton and I have brought six people back to life in 40 years. Well, that's very positive. So that kind of that kind of pushes the bar up. And so bullicide isn't a, a constant thing, but there are low days. Yeah, with, with Chris's story, he was quite, actually questioning his existence. Why am I meant to be here? You, you finally got your answer when you saved six lives. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah, yeah. But as I said, there are low days, even now, and the only way I see out is, is to end it, because the loneliness and the isolation and the fear of being subject to further incidents is uh, a, disability, a disability effect on my health. And are you, are you still in therapy? Uh, yeah. All right. It's it's bra- brave of you to come to come on the radio, but I also appreciate the fact that you you know you've had it very tough. You still feel as if you've had it very tough, and you you're still having it tough. But look at all look at all the positives that's around you. Look at six people walking the earth because you existed. Yeah. Yeah. All right, John. Thank, okay. thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks so much. Right, a couple right. of uh, couple of commercial breaks to take. So we'll take one now before we come back to the phone line. Text or WhatsApp Neil now. Oh eight six eight one zero four one zero six. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. An email came into us on Tuesday and uh, I didn't get a chance to read it. I'd like to read it now. Uh, it's from Bauhaus. Uh, it's t- entitled uh, Bauhaus Closure Statement. Hi Mick, we are not in a position to be able to come on air, but we would like to point out that if the city centre is to encourage small, unique retailers, then lots of things need to be addressed. Those things have been discussed several times on your show. We are sad to be leaving the city after 24 years of trading. It's been uh, emotional reading all the kind and supportive messages from the people of Cork. We can never express how much that means to us. Thanks again and again. Thanks for the opportunity to speak, and we really appreciate it. We'll speak this way rather than coming on air. And that is from Bauhaus, long-standing Cork business, uh, now closing. Uh, To your texts and other comments on uh, social media, uh, on the subject of cash yesterday... Uh, good morning, Mick. Good luck getting Michael O'Leary to take cash on a Ryanair flight. <laughs> we went into a ca- carryout last night and they were turning people away as the card machines were down and not working. That's the price for not accepting cash, I guess. Uh, Mick, I said it before and I'll say it again. If it was card only, it would be a big, big mistake in the future. There's nothing you can do with your own private money whereby those who want to know what you spend it on can do so with the click of a button. What you buy, if you have a bet on... If you go on holiday and where you go, etc., etc. Just imagine having no privacy because Big Brother is watching you. Don't kid yourself. That is exactly the way it will be. Remember the Canadian lorry drivers when the government froze their bank accounts? It will happen if we don't uh, cop on now. I'm listening to Mick right now. I'm recently back from Manchester. Most places are card only. Totally a cashless society over there. And just to uh, remind people, especially those uh, who would be first-time buyers who may be using card, card, card uh, when they go out. That can go against you when you're applying for your mortgage uh, because the detail is all there. Let's go to line two now. 
and to John Morgan. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. Nice to speak to you again. Nice to speak to you again. On the 14th of June, 1982, the uh, streets of Cork City would change forever uh, because it would become, what? Filled with? It would be filled with the Echo Boys of Cork and the Echo Girls. Okay. Uh, And you have done incredible amount of research and writing uh, on this uh, on this topic that tradition uh, would stay in uh, sorry did I say in, in, yeah 1892 um, and that 1892 you're yeah, correct yeah yeah 1892 sorry I just I just thought I said the, the date wrong so that Tuesday a tradition began that would stay in families for over a hundred years from generation to generation tell us what the Echo Boys meant to Cork and to the fabric of Cork well, I suppose the Echo Boys really make is Cork. To me and to everyone else, it's pure Cork because it dates back over 130 years. It's a tradition. It's our culture. It's went on from families to families, as you said, for over 100 years. It's actually unbelievable, the history to it. And I wrote this article during the week because I was here at Christmas with my young lads. And you know the Hollywood yourself. Yes, you know it well, and you know Michael O'Regan? I do, the famous he Michael was on O'Regan. The yeah, Michael O'Regan. He was, um, he was an echo boy for nearly 60 years, and he was on the Hollywood, and my young lads, they're teenagers now, and there's a brilliant article on it all about Michael, and I was explaining to them about Michael and how long he was doing the echo boy, and they read it themselves, and they actually said to me, they said, Dad, did you ever write about the echo boys? I said, I actually didn't. And they said, you need to get it done. So that's kind of how it started. But since I wrote that then, I have people there getting on to me that go back generations again, and they're sending in photos and the stories they're telling. It's it's amazing, really, that you would... Like, I realised they were a huge part of Cork, but it wasn't really till I wrote the article that I got so many messages, even as far as Australia from people that moved there in the 1950s. And they're sending me photos, they're sending me text messages. It's it's unbelievable. It's like, I, I think, I suppose, do I look at it now, Mick? It's kind of nearly gone. We have only one Echo Boy left. And is that down by the, by the GPO or somewhere, is it? That's right, that's Dave and Dave Hogan. And when he goes, I think he's there about 45 years. That's it really as such. Yeah, That's our echo, boys. I think my, Michael, Michael O'Regan would probably be remembered as, as, as the king of them all, but there was hundreds of echo boys over the years, starting with kids uh, who were as young as seven or eight who had uh, no shoes uh, back uh, 120, 30 years ago, uh, but were grateful to earn a wage. They worked throughout the city, and, and they'd have their own patch, wouldn't they? They would, yeah. I mean, it was all over Cork. You could have patches in Patrick Street, Finn's Corner, the GPO, Roche Stores, Academy Street, North Main Street, and so on. They like there was eighty or ninety of them. I think they were saying back in around nineteen eighty. So like there would have been well over a hundred at times, like and more. It's it, it was huge, and I suppose you know yourself. Technology has really come in in the last twenty years, and. It's kind of changed everyone's lifestyle. And obviously then the Echo Boy started diminishing slowly, then you see. And it's our tradition. And I don't know, is it really appreciated as much? But you're right, I think Michael O'Regan was the king, really. Like, he's the, 
He's a fella that we all knew when I grew up in the 80s when I was in town. Michael O'Regan was always there. And even though I didn't know Mick, obviously, in the 80s, it was only, I suppose, in the 2000s that I appreciated what he was all about. And I don't go in town much now, really, but I was there last week. And just before I wrote this, I was actually looking for Dave. I didn't see him around, but do you know the way you'd hear Michael bellowing out Evening Echo? Yeah. I kind of, I kind of found it a bit sad that I, I just didn't hear him anymore because I was so used to hearing him. I suppose for the bones of forty years, and he's gone now. And I wanted to write the article to let people know, even the young people, I suppose, especially coming up, that it's a huge part of our culture and tradition, and you know we have to remember it and appreciate these lads. For, you know, for, for all they done for Cork and like some of these lads Mick, I didn't realise some of them fellas worked for 50, 60 and 70 years Huge amount of time and it's, it's estimated Michael O'Regan must have sold uh, over 2 million newspapers and magazines on the streets of Cork City in his very, very long career Let's have a listen to this Echo, uh, Echo Boys piece from 1972 <laughs> It's sad that much of that is gone and gone online now, isn't it? It is. That That's the only place we'll find it now, online and YouTube and places like that. But it's the stories, McReely, that the lads that have worked it. There's a lad there now, Marco Donovan, who got on to me, and he had some great stories. And I don't know if you remember Johnny Kelleher. Do you remember him? Johnny Kelleher from Glasheen was a remarkable man. He that, sold the Echo, was right. it 75 or 76 years? Um, about 76 years, yeah, and he was in Coliseum Corner. And really, now and truly, Mick, I looked at the videos, he was poetry in motion, the way he was able to flow in and out of traffic. And he was he was an incredible man. And a, a very good friend of mine, Jim Cordy, who's now 91 years of age, knew Johnny Kelleher well. And he was only telling me, I suppose, this must have been eight or nine years ago at the time, he said he was still working and this was into his 80s. I couldn't believe it. Didn't, uh, wasn't Johnny Keller the guy who gave the news to the then Taoiseach Jack Lynch that Christy Ring had passed away? He was walking past him on the bridge or something. That's correct. I think that was in 1979 that when Christy died. Yeah. There, was, there was Dave Hogan from Farinry, 40 years, um, being, being an Echo Boy. Uh, what were the other notable names? Um, there was, the, who was the robot? Oh, the robot. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, that was Gerald Daly. He was in the documentary that came out, I think, was in 1977. And he had a huge family. And a lot of his family members would have walked as Echo Boys and Echo Girls. And he was a great character. And he's still around today um, because a lot of his relatives have, have gone on to me. And he, he was kind of... I suppose he was well known as well, Mick, at the time. And there, there are other notables, and we're getting a couple of texts for a request to mention people as well, but what about Michael O'Mahony, Jimmy O'Sullivan, Jeremiah Cronin, Kevin Lynch, Jimmy Mack, Finbar O'Connor? Yeah, you're right there, the list goes on. You have the likes of Liam Denny, Joey Denny, 
Jimmy McNamara, Michael Sweeney, John Holy, David Goldsmith, as I said, Marco Donovan Olio. It the, uh, the list goes on and on. It's it's incredible, and you you've the Echo Girls as well, I suppose, which we can't forget. How how many you Echo know, Girls I, were there? I meant to ask you that question. That that is a good question, but I can't answer it because I don't know. But what I will say. There was a lot more than I thought because through the, the, the text messages I've been getting, I've been getting um, I've been getting names now even this morning again, and there was actually a lot more than I realised. Yeah. John, where where can people find the article? They can find the article on John Morgan's unique writing and storytelling, or they can find it on the Boys and Girls of Knocker Page. All right, it's been a pleasure to reminisce. Um, thank you very much for coming on this morning. You've certainly evoked a lot of memories. I've been asked to play that Echo Boy piece again, and we'll go to news at 11. Thank you very much, John Morgan. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. that matters. Back to our phone lines and Donica O'Leary, Sinn Féin TD for Cork South Central joins us uh, on line one. Good morning to you, Donica. Good morning. Now, over 170 houses in Cork have apparently been bulk bought by vulture funds in the last three years. Since January 21, over 1,200 houses have been snapped up by the vulture funds. That includes 172 here in Cork. Would-be house buyers have obviously missed out on opportunities to buy as uh, big funds continue to buy up hundreds of properties and new developments and rent them out for massive profit. What's going on here, Donica? Yeah, well, Mick, like I suppose this all started back in uh, in 2021, or at least it came to public attention when there was a lot of controversy around an estate, a whole estate, Menus County Kildare being bought up by a vulture fund. At the time, the government, under pressure, uh, moved to increase stamp duty. But we warned at the time that it wasn't anywhere near enough of an increase and that we would be concerned it would happen again. So two weeks ago, we saw that uh, most of an estate in North County Dublin, uh, in Belcamp Banner, was bought up by these vulture funds. And now we see, we've got the figures now that in the last two years, 12,005 homes have been bought up by these so-called vultures, including 172 here in Cork. Now, like what that means is like these are, um, you know, primarily uh, family homes. These are homes that we are in a situation that, you know, in my clinics and everyone's clinics, uh, NETD's clinics, you're talking to families who are trying to figure out how they're going to get their first home and they are scrimping and saving and they'll talk to you about the spreadsheets they put together to manage their spending and the, the, the shared notes that they have to, to, to just try and get together to deposit the difficulty that they have. Uh, but this is all being pushed up when you have international investors who, who will snap up all these properties and put them out into the... Um, into the rental market at exorbitant rents, at absolutely enormous rents, and they don't pay any tax either on their rental income, which is another matter. So, like, these are being given completely for the rain, uh, and 172 families, as far as we can start here in Cork. So, hang, a, hang on a second. They, they, they can come in here and own Irish title in, in bulk and not pay any tax? 
Not on their rental income, no. On corporation profits, they can, but not on their rental income, okay. which is unlike other forms of landlords, uh, other landlords that might have three or four houses that are not a real estate investment trust. Um, they would have to pay uh, tax on the rental income, all right. Um, but that's not the case with the real estate investment trust. So, like, I mean, that's another huge issue here as well. Um, but, like, these, the, in, as far as I'm concerned, 172 families here have, in Cork have been cheated out of an opportunity. And what's more, it has pushed the prices up. It puts more and more pressure on the price of housing here uh, in Cork. We're trying to figure out exactly where the 172 are. I suspect most of them are in or around the city, so we're trying to establish that at the minute. It will take a bit of investigating. Um, but um, I think, you know, those 172 houses should have been available for, for ordinary families who are working hard, who are doing everything right, who are, you know, going to college or getting a trade or working all the hours that they can um, to try and put together the money. Um, but it's just becoming more and more difficult for so many young families starting out. Okay, and of course these exorbitant rents, as you say, have a number of effects. Uh, The first being that you're dealing with a faceless entity rather than a landlord. The second being it's also dragging up the landlord rents for the individual landlords. It's it's dragging up their capability to to make more money from their properties. Uh, And that's that's to, to the detriment of the renter. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, it is fuel to the fire, really. Like, it is fuel to the fire both for the for those who are trying to purchase homes uh, and also for those who are renting. It is pushing the price of houses up and it is putting uh, the price of rental up because, as I say, these will all be going to rent through the real estate investment trust funds, these, these vulture funds. Uh, and, you know, like, to what end? To who, who benefits only the shareholders of these companies? It's not... You know, there's no one here is going to benefit. Um, and you know, whereas if these homes had been, or these homes had been preserved for the market under what we had been proposing is to to effectively ban these real estate investment trusts buying bulk buying uh, homes in this state, then this wouldn't be happening. The government said that they would deal with it. They're saying now that they're angry that they that this shouldn't be happening. Well, they had the chance two years ago to put it right. Um, they they didn't agree with our analysis that the 10% was too low. We think it needs to be a minimum of 20, 17%, but if it needs to be 25% or even 50%, that's that's what it should be. We have no we have no qualms about that. Um, but what's more is the government, including Cork TDs, had the opportunity again uh, the last two weeks as we put a motion before the Doyle uh, to try and raise up the stamp duty to prevent this happening again, and they haven't done that. So I am concerned. Like you look at the rental market that's here in Cork, why wouldn't it be attractive to these investment trusts? Why wouldn't it be attractive to these vultures? Do they think? Do they would they not think that they could make money out of the markets here in Cork? You can be sure that yeah. they would. So if they're given free reign um, to do so, then they will continue to do so. They shouldn't be allowed to do so. We need to be preserving these properties. We need to be preserving these houses, these homes for Cork families. Um, uh, and you know, um, I think a line needs to be drawn under this. But the government continues to let them in through the back door. Okay, how how, how many distressed mortgages are in the hands of vulture funds now? And do you think that's a good thing? I don't have that to hand now, but like I mean, certainly what I believe is that they shouldn't have been allowed, particularly with the state or the banks that the state had a share in. The government allowed them to 
sell those mortgages to them much too easily. I think that they where the government had a stake, I suppose in a private bank, it would have been more difficult, but there were, the government had a stake in the three largest banks um, and they shouldn't have allowed them to sell those mortgages, certainly not so easily as they did. I regularly speak to, due to speak to somebody actually after this call, who is uh, in a mortgage that was sold to um, one of the one of the funds um, and um, they are in very difficult situations. A lot of them, their, their interest rates have increased and as critical as they would be of the big banks and I would be very critical of them it is easier to negotiate with the traditional banks than these than these firms and it can be very difficult to, to restructure a mortgage if you're under pressure okay. and they were given no choice in it which was completely wrong. Okay I want to get to Joanna Murphy who's an auctioneer and an expert uh, on the ground uh, working as she does but I know you wanted to comment on the CUH situation before we let you go Danica. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think the comments there from uh, this morning from Conor GC are, are really, really worrying. He's a consultant in CUH. He's also the, the president of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine. And he's saying like that, you know, we're at uh, 300% capacity um, that, you know, that there are, there, sorry, yeah, they're over 300% capacity. Uh, the, the, this morning, I think there were 117 people waiting in the emergency department, 45 people on trial. Like these are primarily... Uh, older people and vulnerable people. It's been clear now, like I mean I think I and others have been raising this for the last couple of years, the CUH along with UHL are clearly in the worst situation it's not getting the investment it's it's totally unfair on staff, like they're pulled from pillar to post, I know they're working the very hardest that they can, lots of them skipping breaks, working extremely long shifts, but you can't have that level of excess capacity, that many people on trolleys, that many people in the emergency department and it not have an impact on outcomes and on health and uh, I really look Stephen Donnelly last year says we can't have another winter like last winter but yeah. here it is the situation in the CUH is at the most severe end but the whole system is under pressure uh, and I think you know the government needs to revise what it decides in the budget it didn't invest enough in beds it didn't promise the uh, it didn't deliver the promised 1,500 additional beds or the statutory home care scheme so that needs to be addressed urgently and we will be raising that this morning in the dial okay. specific reference to CUH because it's just not good enough Finally, Donica Lira, I'm going to read out this email to you. I'm not putting you on the spot, just to get a, a human reaction if I can. Uh, my father is in CUH for, uh, with a bladder infection. Uh, he had this bladder infection on January 4th, was admitted to A&E, but looking at the drug list uh, used, he only got one IV antibiotic in day one. No antibiotics for the next seven days. Discharged. A week later, admitted to A&E again with bladder infection. Gave uh, four antibiotics on the first day, then nothing. Three days later, discharged, complaining of stomach and back pains. On the first A&E visit, a night nurse would pull the bell out of his reach when he needed to empty a urine bag. And when he got out to do it himself, he'd be given out to like a child and was told go back to bed. A couple of nights later, he rang us. Uh, he was drugged on a sleeping tablet, talking non-coherently, and he doesn't have dementia, only Parkinson's and heart stents for narrowing arteries. On the second stay in CUH, he was dragged back to bed, and his legs were not fully working on Parkinson's meds. He also had the urine bag and was sitting in the urine for about 7 to 12 uh, five hours. There were so many laxatives used, he had an accident later. Nobody washed him down. We feel his care was well below standard and don't know what to do. Are there others getting the substandard treatment and how do they handle it? Who do we complain to? Now, I know you're, you've no experience in this or even in this particular individual case. Uh, and it's rare that you get that sort of a contention of poor uh, quality service once you get inside the door uh, of the CUH. But on, on, on that basis... 
are, are people being discharged because there's absolutely no capacity to take new people in? Well, look, yeah, as I say, first, first thing they say is just in relation to that, that sounds like a really awful experience and I'm terribly sorry for what that man experienced and indeed for his family as well. Those must have been terribly worried about him. Obviously, as you know, I've no clinical expertise, so in terms of medication or what's appropriate and what's not, I, I wouldn't be able to comment. But but what I, 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 there is a complaints mechanism and I send it through to you after I'm off the call and if that person wants to make a complaint, then, then maybe you can direct them as how best to do that. Like my own experience in hospitals has always been very positive, but obviously it's possible um, that, you know, that things are not as they should be in individual circumstances. Um, is it possible that capacity affects these things? Undoubtedly, it is. Like you cannot continue to stretch a system, and that it doesn't have an impact on the quality of care that people get. I my experience has always been that the staff are working absolutely as hard as they can, absolutely breaking their backs. A superhuman effort generally, but. Um, but, it, it, you know, there's only so far you can stretch the system without it having an impact. The other most frustrating thing in the CUH is that there are um, a few dozen people in there who are ready to be discharged, but there's nowhere to go. And the lack of community and step-down beds is a massive, massive issue. I can raise yeah. All right, Dolly, I've got to move on. Joanna's been waiting for a long time. Sure, uh, I'll, uh, I'll send you on the contact details there. Sure. If thanks, the person wants to be. Yeah. Th- thanks a million as always, but I keep wondering, you know, by what metric uh, do we think we're living in a fabulous country? There's so many fabulous things about it, uh, but there's so much that has stretched and gone wrong and just overburdened. Thanks for holding all that time. Joanna Murphy, auctioneer on uh, line two. Good morning to you. Good morning, Mick, and how are you? We've probably kept you from a few viewings, have we? Absolutely, I've just <laughs> nipped in. <laughs> Okay, you want to comment on the vulture funds? They're buying blocks of apartments and housing estates that are unfinished, which is, you reckon, not a bad thing. Okay, so there's just a few things to cover. First things first, Mick, I think everyone deserves a home, that's for sure. And in actual fact, I was only watching Reeling in the years from the last decade the other night, and the amount of ghost estates dotted all over Cork City, Cork County, throughout Ireland, was actually frightening. And foreign investment capital was very welcome by all and a sundry back then to solve this problem. So I think irrespective of who buys new homes in bulk, be it a housing agency or a local authority or an international investment fund, these are all supply in the rental market. The local authorities will rent the homes as social housing or sell as affordable homes. The international funds will provide rental stock to those who need to rent. And, you know, I suppose when I look at the housing market, I look at the different aspects to the market. Who are our buyers? Who are the people who are going to live in these houses? So you have social, you have affordable, you have the private person, which, in actual fact, this sector, I feel, is suffering. And a lot has got to do with the sites are being bought up by the local authorities, which is fine, but there needs to be a balance. And then you obviously have the investors in the rental market. Example, you have a foreign company coming into this country, which... This country is doing so well from that perspective and is very attractive to the foreign investment. The other day, for example, I have a company now coming to Cove and they want, they have 70 employees coming and they need, they want to find rental accommodation for 70 employees. 70 in Cove? Where am I, 70 in Cove, like where am I going to find that? And so not only have you got the foreign investment with their employees, you would then have people who need a home who are homeless. And of course, then you have the individual who just wants to rent. So, that's a huge aspect. Like if I put a property up for rent and daft, I can promise you I will have anything between four and 500 emails within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Ludicrous. And everyone has a story, Mick. Everyone's story deserves to be heard. 
And, you know, a lot of people in a lot of, you know, they don't have a home. They haven't had a home for a long time. And it's really, really, it's just unfortunate. What's the apartment situation like in these days? You don't hear much about apartments anymore. People who buy apartments do it maybe as a step up to eventually buying a family home or as a step down after a divorce or something. Yeah, so if you look at, I mean, Cork County Council would be commended for this, to be honest. They've offered a suite of different financing options for uh, the first-time buyer, for the you know the person who may be um, going to a smaller house for different reasons. You know, they might have lost a partner or they're divorced or they're just a single, you know, they're a single person, they don't want a big house, etc. Apartments, if you put an apartment up for, for sale, the two types of buyers are the person living on their own um, or, you know, the young person trying to get on the property ladder or the investor. Which is great, but you don't, and and that's I suppose where the foreign investment couple, you know, comes in. That you would have seen a lot of derelict apartment blocks throughout the years, and isn't it great to see that they're being bought up, repurposed, and rented out, which is which is what it's all about. So they're you're 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 giving accommodation then to the person. And I, I suppose even to go back on, um, you know, looking at housing stock, right? Um, and yes, like we need more housing stock. But if you look at the recent report, and I was only reading them actually this morning, um, 31,600 new homes were built by September 2023. And 12 months previous to that was 27,000. So, I mean, that's massive progress and heading in the right direction. But, and I'm sure everyone will agree, more could be done. And predominantly, there's three obstacles that are in the way. Planning. Like I actually, there was a report only out this morning, in a recent report, there was 30,000 planning applications are waiting to be processed. Yeah, I, I, I heard that. that. That's incredible red tape. Incredible, right? And then the cost of construction. It now costs an average 461,000 to build a house as opposed to 318,000. And that is predominantly due to the cost of labour and the cost of construction. Is that for an independent detached house, privately owned or what? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then you have, I mean, and you'll know it, I, I guarantee you anyone listening this morning finds it difficult to get a plumber, an electrician, a builder, because they're all so busy. Because there's a lack of tradespeople out there. There's a shortage of labour. Yeah, and again, yeah. in a recent report, um, if I, just in a recent sure. report that I read, 50,000 construction workers will be needed to build 35,000 homes and further develop another 446,000 homes to make them more energy efficient. Like, where are those workers going to come from? But on, so, and, like, as, as the flip side of that, or the seesaw element to that, apparently a recent report has said that over 90% of all loans sold, sold by NAMA, the National Asset Management Agency, have gone to international funds. The vast majority in the US, uh, and this was claimed by the United Nations, uh, they uh, were highly critical of government policies, which they say have allowed unprecedented amounts of global capital into Ireland's housing market. Who's the loser? Joe and Mary Bloggs trying to buy a house. Yeah, and I suppose this is, I suppose, just to focus. I mean, there's obstacles in everything, right? And we need to, I mean, like it is what it is now. We have, there's international companies coming in here to buy, purchase properties that otherwise aren't being purchased etc right which is important so everyone gets a chance to have a home they are being repurposed Nick they are being rented out and, and I see that myself in my own job but we need I suppose if I'm if I can just go back to the I suppose the trades the lack of labour right the lack of getting trades people there the suggestion that I would have and this is my own personal suggestion and even listening to Deputy O'Leary there this is an area that his and his Eructus colleagues could actually look at making a positive change, make positive proposals for an apprenticeship programs needed to attract more apprentices to for the employers. 
And a suggestion that I would suggest is that this employer be paid for the first two years by government to train an apprentice. Because the lack of apprentice is, I mean, that's our next generation of construction workers. If we don't train them now, who is going to work in construction? Hey, the, so the, the problem with the first I, couple of years, Joanna, and, and incrementally afterwards, is that the, the living wage of an apprentice you just can't live on. Your take-home pay won't take you home. But it needs to be up to Mick. It, I mean, apprenticeships, like I know, I have three boys, and I know my youngest, I've said to him, will you not try and get into a trade? Because if they're, being, if, they're, if they're getting into a trade and they're going for an apprenticeship, when you're doing your apprenticeship, you're still being paid whilst you're doing it to get into the trade. If you can live at home, if, if it's a nearby apprenticeship, well, that, that may no, work. no, because, well, yes and no, right? I, I mean, there, there's people I know out there that are, have, got, have got their own house, they're renting it. If a, if a couple are renting a property, they can afford to pay the rent. And I know the trades people are getting great wages at the moment, but there is a lack of them. And this is where the apprenticeship programmes need to really come on stream. Okay, and, and why isn't uh, someone on the ground and with your expertise then in these think tanks and, and, and clearing that red tape, um, clearing the obstacles to building because it's so badly needed? But I do, yeah, but I, 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 the apprenticeship programmes, that has been talked about more and more. I'm hearing about it more and more. Um, and I know that a lot of colleges are endeavouring to increase that. And more and more kids and you know kids that I would be in contact with are beginning to talk about it. The cost of construction, I, look, it's it's it's, it's like I, I just give an example. If you were to put an ensuite into a house a couple of years ago, it might cost you five grand. Today, it's going to cost you eight and a half grand. Just just as a, in the planning stage, that's what you'd be budgeting for it, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So like that's massive. That's a huge increase. So yeah. how they're going to how they're going to curb the cost of construction? I don't know, but definitely they can do something about the tradespeople coming down with that we're that we're going to need coming down the tracks, and even now. But the other thing too, um, which I think is is kind of important, right, is that there is a lot of estates being built, and I just feel that you know it needs to be affordable for the first time buyer. That's the main thing, right? Is that, you know, for the private first, so let's say your son wants to buy a house or my son wants to buy a house, that it is affordable for them within reach. That's the main thing. Okay, so first time buyer um, to be focused on with maybe increased. Uh, now, I know, and you're an expert on this, and you gave very good advice the last time, that a considerable percentage of first-time buyers don't know exactly what's available to them Available to them when it comes to uh, the grants and the, you know, the derelict housing exactly. grant, uh, energy upgrade grants and all that kind of thing. Like, for example, now, um, like, I have a house coming in there quite soon, and um, I just went to the other person on the outside now yesterday, and I know it needs work, right? But it has been vacant for the last four years, so straight away it qualifies for the vacant home grant. I think that amounts something up to, like, 70 grand. And then you have the energy grant on top of that, and if the property is derelict, you have another grant on top of that. Unfortunately, the first-time buyer, and through no fault of their own, because people are busy, right, they don't know that. So when I, and, and that's why I say to first-time buyers, you don't have to buy a new house. Buying a second-hand house that needs a bit of work is brilliant because you'll get it for the right price. You can, I mean, you might be able to do a bit of work yourselves. You can take your time doing it to your budget. And it's probably not going to be your first home anyway. Yeah, You're probably going to sell it in a couple of years' time when it's even better. Yeah, it's the old adage, always buy the worst property on the best street. But I'm going to have to leave it there, Joanna. Thank you very much, as always, for your expertise. No problem, thank Thanks. you. Thanks, cheers, bye-bye. Jim Ahern is on line three. Morning, Jim, you're in the building industry. How are you, boys? Good, how are you going? Very good, very good. Um, 
Yeah, just just on the point Sterlish is making there, which is the host that she is coming up there now, you know, for, for sale, she's shooting off all those grants. The problem with auctioneers is they've added that onto the sale price, so everybody's in for the kill, you know. If you look at the price of that property three years ago and look at it now, and it's still derelict for that time, you'll you see that all those grants are now being added on. And they'll tell you, oh, if you buy this, you get 50 and 60 and 70, and that's supposed to sweeten you. So it is no good for the buyer. Um, yeah, but the, the, that, have, hang on a second. How, how can she be adding it on to the to, to the cost of the house? They, they, well, they, they can only be granted when when the house changes ownership. You can apply as the new owner. House is sold then. I would say if, if the property is generally worth two hundred, three hundred thousand or something, right? And they tell you that you will also qualify for seventy k. You can be damn sure that that built, that property is going to go up for three three fifty or three sixty, whereas it's only worth three hundred. That that's what's happening. And the auctioneers are doing that, and they know they're doing it. Okay, you wanted to comment on you wanted to comment on vulture funds. Well, vulture funds, like I mean, look, I mean, the money going out of the country—that's a government decision again, you know. And it's all been signed, and this has all been subsidised by the Irish taxpayers. All our, all our money is leaving the country on vulture funds. Why the government can't tax it? No, that was all given away by by, by, by Michael Noonan. You know, who's, who's prompting um, it? There, who's prompting it, Jim? Yeah, that, that's Michael Murphy there next to Look, Michael, he's an awful man. But, you know, like, the, the vulture funds should straight away be taxed. I mean, they should not have this tax-free zone with them, you know. Uh, that's not fair on anybody else. Can you imagine you're renting a house down the road and a vulture fund can buy the house right next to you? The government takes half the tax back off you and takes nothing off the crowd next to you. So how could that be fair? Yeah, it's a, I guess it's a, I guess it's a fair point, but it's, it's the fact they're not paying re- they're not paying tax on their rental income uh, because it, it can go in under their massive corporation uh, incomings uh, of revenue. It you does, know. Yeah. Okay. And you, can one, to, so, if you can leave the country to so so good funding or so good parents, this is what it's called, should be businesses. Yeah. Like we we built forty thousand houses last year. Eunice, Joanna said there, right? How many of them are social social houses and how many of them are for the ordinary body girl that are working? And secondly, in the height of the boom, when we were building, we were, when the builders were doing it, not when the social builders were building it now, or when the government control of it, or NAM is still bloody at the hand in it, we were building 93,000 houses a year. That was way back when. That was uh, 15 years ago, we were building 93,000 units a year, 103 or something like that, and most of those are social housing. There was no houses there for our young people. Everybody is geared towards the social housing. Now, the big problem I have in this country is that HAP is controlling all the rents. There's no problem with the government next week putting an extra 10% onto HAP. That means that anybody that's renting somewhere else has to compete against that. HAP should be wiped out, come up with a different system, and let the, let the whole market find its true level. That's the housing assistance payment. And, and everything means tested to to a limit. Get rid of it. It is killing it. It is killing the industry. Now, it has done wanting. It has started the industry back up again for NAMA. Like, because the industry was done this ass. But they, it is NAMA shut the industry down. When NAMA had all those properties, I don't know anyone that I know ended up buying a NAMA property. I don't know who bought all that property. They controlled it. Yeah, 90%, 90%, 90% gone, gone to U.S. corporations, apparently. Jim, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much for contributing this morning to the Neil Prendivit Show. Very best to you. Call Neil now. 0818 104 The Neil Prendivit Show on Red FM. That Maxi Zoo place sounds like a lot of fun. The perfect, perfect place to meet the paparazzi. 
Very, very clever. Let's get to some of your texts and back to our phone lines then. Uh, on travel, Mick, I was watching a stream from Dublin Airport a few days ago. You're allowed to go round, but on the third time you must land or divert, says Jim. Yes, I mentioned yesterday I watched uh, an airplane circling Cork uh, around eight times, but it's only three times you're allowed to attempt a landing. If you fail the first and you go around, fail the second and you go around, you must land or divert after the third attempt. Agriculture, animal uh, agriculture is uh, equally cruel to animals such as pigs. If people want to know, they can look into it, but they won't because it'll put them off their full Irish breakfast. Apparently, disgraceful carry-on, according to a texter in Mayfield a couple of nights ago. Somebody called the fire services out regarding a fire at the Dominican Centre. There was no fire reported. It was a smouldering fire pit on the entrance. It's almost out as, as the protest was ending, just people keeping warm, I suppose. Fire services were there for a long time as they needed Garda permission to leave. Somebody called out the fire brigade for no reason whatever, uh, apart from divilment. Uh, and protesters didn't call them, so who did? We touched on gambling yesterday, and just a couple of texts on that. The sad thing about gambling is that everyone knows this fixing going on. From doping horses to stuffing dogs with sausages before racing to slowing them down. It's a mugs game. Uh, and we spoke to Tony yesterday, the postman who uh, went through millions, over 10 million in his gambling um, time. Uh, delighted uh, that you've come out the other side, Tony. Addiction is a horrible disease. My daughter had the opportunity to listen to your story recently uh, in school. She was absolutely amazed by your story. And she's talked about you non-stop since. It is great work that you're doing, making young people aware of the dangers. And these uh, facilities, uh, Tabor, etc., that help people are a lifeline to families. Tabor saved my son's life. Uh, we're a family that are ever so thankful for the help my son received. Final text, uh, different topic. This is on Yall, which we spoke about during the week. Hi, Mick. I feel so bad for the people in Yall. Their lovely town has taken over. And now Red Barn, so it's out now for holidaymakers. What's happening there with the mobile mobile home site? People have been going there a whole lifetime. The hotel has gone too. It was such a lovely hub. Enough is enough for us Irish people. Uh, that is from Marie. And if you've any light to shed on anything uh, around Red Barn, I don't want to be saying it's not available for the summer when in fact it probably could be. Uh, so please get in touch on 0818 104 106 by phone or 086 8104 106 by text. Jamie Budd is online too. Morning, Jamie. Hi. Now, you're the owner of Bud's Restaurant in Bally Dehab, beautiful West Cork. Hi, yeah, that's true, exactly. And you're struggling, but you're not closing. Struggling, but we're not closing. Uh, I'm going to fight as much as possible in order to remain open. And um, it's a, it's a, the fight is real, the struggle is real. And this struggle and fight uh, is something that I think everybody within the business and also the public themselves, who will obviously also be very, very much affected, should also stand up and fight for, you know? Yeah, now we've covered in some detail uh, the factors that are causing so much stress to uh, restaurant owners, not least the uh, increasing of the VAT rate back up to the original 13.5%. Uh, to help them recover from lack of business uh, during COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's talk that the uh, the, the warehousing uh, of the tax will be uh, given a 10-year, uh, you know, ten. you've got a 10-year reprieve there. Um, but mm-hmm. we've, we've gone through, and the invisible parts, I suppose, we've gone through a huge energy crisis. You guys are huge energy users, mm-hmm. not just lighting mm-hmm. and cooking, uh, but using the mm-hmm. gas for the cooking. You've taken a massive hit there. Uh, and there was grants available last year for business on the energy. That's gone this year as well. 
there's yep. also the, the, the rising cost of produce, the rising cost mm-hmm. of labour, uh, new labour mm-hmm. laws coming in about, um, you know, pensions and entitlements and all that kind of thing, which is to be welcomed in mm-hmm. general, uh, but is having an inordinate effect on, uh, you know, low to medium turnover restaurants. Um, mm-hmm. So where is the future? Where does it lie? Well, um, well, obviously, it's, uh, it's a case of the, the, the actual business themselves changing their strategy, um, which, you know, realistically uh, would involve cutting down the percentage of uh, people employed at that business. So, obviously, cutting down the workforce, uh, you know, in turn, which is, you know, uh, obviously not very good for the employment. Um, or changing their strategy in terms of the actual produce they produce. Uh, so, you know, in terms of what we do in our restaurant, we, we, we cook virtually everything from scratch. We use as much uh, local and organic produce as we possibly can. And we, we you know, we, we, we have bakers and chefs and baristas and, you know, we, the, the, obviously people come to us because we they like what we're doing and we're doing something which is which is obviously you know well cooked and well done and um and it's a nice experience all round whereas you know in order to kind of cut them costs you'd have to look at the 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 the, the produce that you produce and that would mean doing you know cheaper cheap using cheaper ingredients uh cooking dishes which uh obviously doesn't uh, take up as much uh, as 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 many people to actually make it in the first place. But there there so are elements you can you, there are elements you can help and there are elements you can't help, uh, Jamie. Yeah. The, the VAT rate is something that could be changed if the government had a will to, but they don't seem well, to. I, Whatever about produce well, and supply prices. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of the VAT rate, I mean, you know, obviously you mentioned all those other costs that went up. I think, obviously, yeah, there's many different factors as to why why they they went up. But the VAT rate, for for many, many years, the the, the 9% VAT rate was a huge cushion for the hospitality sector. Because, you know, you're dealing with a very specific uh, kind of uh, sector here. You know, you're dealing with food, uh, you're dealing with ingredients, which, you know, ultimately a lot of it, fresh, fresh produce... It has like a three to four day shelf life. Now, in many, many other businesses, you simply just don't have that, you know. Um, and so, you know, you, we, we've got a, a, a much more of an uphill uphill battle um, in terms of, the, of what we're actually doing and creating. So the 9% VAT rate was a huge cushion for this industry. And taking that away at the end of uh, last year, uh, at the end of already quite a tough year, just after, you know, uh, you know, people were heading overseas again after the whole COVID thing. And it was an absolute slap in the face. And I mean, a lot of places, it, it, you know, were closing after that because it was just uh, too much of a, of, a, of a burden to bear and too much of an uphill cost. And so I feel that me personally, I mean, I've many, many quites with the government on what they can change and what they can do to help, you know, in the form of grants and whatnot. But certainly the VAT rate is something that can be changed and I feel can be changed quite quickly and easily, you know? So it's something that's very realistic at this time. Yeah, but the, t- um, the tightrope that restaurants are walking, is, is it's kind of like this. There's only so much you can put your costs up uh, mm. because that's born, it's on to the customers. Uh, and, yeah. and the higher costs make less customers come and that affects your turnover. Absolutely. So in, in, Absolutely. in effect, in, in effect, our restaurant prices, you know, even if people consider them expensive... Are restaurant prices mm-hmm. here lower than they should be uh, for sustainability of the business? 100%. 100%. I mean, depending on the restaurant that you're going to, like, I mean, you know, anybody that's in this game knows exactly what the profit margins are. There's a certain amount of restaurants that, you know, 
will will kind of have their pricing right. I mean, you know, we we obviously try to keep. We've always tried to keep with the with the with the quality of the produce that we use. I've always tried to keep our prices kind of as low as I possibly could, because our main bread and butter is our local community, and you know where we're based in in rural islands. You know, in in Baladi Hob, we're um, we we only have the tourists for a few months of the year, and then they're gone. You know, so it's the local people that really are the people that kind of need the service of the small independent, you know, restaurant or whatever whatever it may be. And so if you put your prices up, you know, higher than, uh, it, it's just going to force them out. Is it, you know, they're not going to be able to afford to come to you or they're going to come to you once a week, yeah. if that, you know. I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm thinking so, of the, the destination eateries that I've been to, and I haven't been to Bud, so I, I can't comment. I imagine you're right. a destination restaurant uh, in Valley Dihar. But for instance, uh, Gavin Moore's fabulous Monks Lane, in uh, Tim yeah. League, Wilds in Balance Biddle is incredible. Uh, great twists mm-hmm. on menus there. But is the pressure yeah. now uh, to bring up the turnover to dumb down the menu and almost err towards fast food? Well, this is what I just uh, I just said to you. You know, this is the kind of direction that we're going in, and I certainly don't want to be going in that direction. I'm su- I'm sure the two places that you mentioned there don't want to be going in that direction. Do we? Do we? I mean, let's face it. You know, most of us. Uh, you know, especially if you if you, you're into food and, and and eating different types of good quality food, we want to go to you know good quality places. And um, and unfortunately, the way things are going, you're going to see less and less of those because we're just not going to be able to. Uh, you know, kind of uh, claw our way through this tidal wave of, of costs, you know? It's easy for the government to say, nah, no, no, we're, we're not going to reduce uh, whatever about for the hotel and accommodation industry. Uh, they could possibly reduce the hospitality food industry uh, back to 9%. It's easy enough for them to say, no, no, no. But does that signal a, a kind of a negative attitude or an unknowing uh, within government circles of exactly how difficult things are for you guys? Well, I, this is the reason why I'm I've I've started this petition in the first place. It's like I, for me, it was like right, that's enough. That's just enough. I know I, you know because we're we, you know a lot of us in this industry we do we do we do chat amongst ourselves, and you know we we've we've been struggling now for the last couple of years, and you know it's 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 just getting worse and worse. So. I mean, I, I felt that someone just has to stand up and actually tackle this because the government just don't seem to be able to, you know, uh, understand the difficulty that, that this industry is facing. And of course, all these politicians come to these restaurants themselves. They all eat in these places. Do they want to be going to uh, a fast food outlet, a big, huge corporate chain for the lunch every day? Because, I mean, that's the way things are going to go. OK, so speaking of standing look- up, you, you, you've begun to stand up with a petition. Tell me about the petition. Well, the petition is, like I say, it's, it's basically. I just, I just felt right. If, if I need to, I need to try and start something here. I need to try and start something that basically, um, as many of the public and, of course, anyone involved in the hospitality uh, industry um, uh, who has or is being affected, to stand up and fight as one collective voice, voice to change the government stance on the uh, on the on the VAT rate. Um, which is obviously having a crippling effect um, on the on the industry, and um, you know I just I want to try and get as many signatures as, as possible, and then hit all the relevant um, sources or you know people within the government with this and say right, listen, we, we we can do this. There's obviously a huge wave of people that that are really suffering, and the consequences if you don't act is going to be catastrophic for this industry. And for the tourism industry as well. Where can people access and sign the petition? 
Um, it's on. Um, it's on. Uh, we, we, you can find it on uh, our kind of uh, Facebook page um, and also our Instagram page, which is at Buds uh, at, at, uh, Buds West Cork. And there's a link in there for the uh, for the uh, for the uh, petition. And there's also a couple of other uh, people now that have shared it on their site. So it is kind of uh, being distributed. I know. Um, on uh, Echo Live, it's going to be uh, the link is going to be on there as well. So you could just go on, go on to Echo Live. It's just been it's the the article uh, has been in the paper this this morning, so it's on there today. So there's a few different avenues you can go down now. If you go on on social media, you'll find the you'll find the link. You know. Yeah. Okay. Echo uh, today's edition of the Echo page three as yeah. well. Uh, continued success in the business and with the cooking and with the fine food. That's being delivered and uh, must get down someday at some stage to Bud's Restaurant in uh, Ballydehaven. Thank you, Jamie Bud, uh, owner of Bud's Restaurant. We wish you all the very best with the uh, petition. Cheers. Okay. Thanks cheers, very Nick. much. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. cheers. Bye bye. We uh, covered a topic yesterday uh, about cashless society and uh, we got a huge amount of um, response to it. In fact, one meme that was uh, going around yesterday uh, popped up on the feed as well uh, and it says this uh, if any business goes cashless, it's our duty to show them how to also go clientless. Uh, Philip said, uh, when will they stop this lark? What's the problem with having cash as payment in all situations? If they think this is the way forward, uh, then their way of thinking is backwards. Cash is king and always will be. Karen says, no cash, no me. Anna says, one thing I will say is COVID showed us a lot. Some companies wouldn't accept cash. So me and my husband don't shop in those places since then uh, as they would not allow us to spend money there. Well, Anna, it was a recommendation not to use cash because of the transference of germs or the virus or whatever back in that day. And it was government advice to use card as much as possible. Uh, many would complain things haven't gone back in balance with cash. Anna C says, well, cash is king. We budget on cash once my husband's wages comes in and it keeps us in check. But everyone is different. I think we need cash as computers go out all the time. Don't forget as well, folks, it's much easier to spend by tap, tap, tapping uh, than it is by looking at what's left in your pocket. Karina says, so many times my card wouldn't work or my card got frozen due to it being lost. It takes 10 days usually for a replacement card. You can get up to 200 euro emergency withdrawal. Cash is king. It keeps coming up. If we lose money, we can't uh, help the homeless. People can't make money on the side. What about charities collecting on the streets? It'll be exactly like COVID. Do it, you're told, or there will be problems. It's all about control. Back in a moment. The Neil Prenderville Show on Red FM. Conversation that matters. Just turn five to twelve, wrapping up the Neil Prendival show for today with some of your texts on the topics of today on VMware and Mick Barry. There's no legal impediment on businesses to provide maternity leave. As far as I'm aware, businesses who do pay maternity leave claim it back from social welfare. Women are, however, entitled to unpaid maternity. If VMware was sold, they are entitled to offer new contracts. I don't think these women are going to get anywhere. They should either take the new contract or leave it. There's no point in McBarry trying to go after the female vote here. And another texter says, Bandwagon Mick looking for attention yet again. He was calling women and children Nazi scum not too long ago. Was he? I don't know. I'm open for clarification on that one. Government policy are killing people. The toxic government must go. Uh, and we'll leave on the topic of bullying with two uh, particular texts that we've picked from the many that came in. Mick, do you ever notice it's always two or three bullies? Bullies are cowards. 
Simple as. It's looking for strength in numbers and looking to be cool to find some purpose in life in order to deflect from their own inadequacies. If you bullied someone at any stage in life, you're nothing but a coward. I repeat, a worthless coward. So says Trevor. And final text of the day. Please keep me anonymous. My heart goes out to Chris and what he's endured. It is so important that victims speak up early. My son was being verbally abused in second year. It then went into the physical realm. He broke down one evening out of the blue and it was shocking to see. I approached the school and it got resolved. All involved admitted that the bullying was for no particular reason. I'm so relieved the situation didn't worsen and the school was supportive. And if bullying is of interest to you as a parent uh, or as a friend, uh, then please tune in from 11 to 12 tomorrow. We have a lady travelling specially from Dublin to speak to me about uh, the incredible amount of bullying and the ferocity of it uh, which made her go blind. She's regained her sight but her full story uh, we'll have tomorrow on the Neil Prendiford Show. My thanks to Neil's team uh, and that is uh, Kevin, uh, Seamus and to Claire. When court talks Cork people blow my mind They talk to Neil Prendiford On Red FM